Peter Molyneux comes in with a group of people. I think he's working on Fable at the time. Okay. Sits down at the computer to play. Gets instantly pounced by a hunter. His co-workers ignore him and just keep going. <laughs> he literally, within five seconds of playing, he is getting mauled by a hunter, killed, looks around, just gets up and walks out. <laughs> it's like, there may have been something going on with that team that... Uh... <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to veteran game developer Chuck Falasek. Chet is best known for co-founding the website Old Man Murray and his work at Valve on games such as Left 4 Dead and Portal 2. He currently runs Stray Bombay with Kimberly Vol. This episode was recorded on August 17th, 2021, and was engineered by Michael Hermes. So before we begin, your last name? Falasek. Falasek. Don't let disease scare you. Okay. It's Falasek. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Cool. Well, welcome. And, uh, you know, as, as I like to start off with, like, what's the first video game that you remember? So uh, I'm old. Uh, so first, in, like, the coin-op stuff I played was the mechanical ones, right? Mechanical. Like the bad racing games that were, like, the, the looping road and the shooting games. The first video game would have been uh, Pong. Pong itself. Would have been like the, the sit down, I think it was, this, yeah, sit down one on Putin Bay Island. My uh, dad and my uh, uncle. Where is that? In, in Ohio. In Ohio. So okay. it's the islands in the kind of western side of Lake Erie. Okay. My dad and my uncle would um, use an excuse to take me and my nephews fishing. Okay. It really meant they were just going to play cards for right. the weekend okay. and leave us to run off and do whatever we wanted, which was sit in a bar and play Pong. Right. Because yeah. it was the '70s, and that's what you could do. Yeah. Did it stand out for you at the time? Like. Oh yeah. 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 No. No. Instantly. And my my uncle was the kind of guy like he had pinball machines in his house and stuff. Right. So he eventually got something. I forget. And my dad actually worked at a Novar Electronics, an electronics company, and he um, ended up like his boss had I think the early Magnavox or the Fairchild, like something really early, and lent it to us for a little bit um, before we got something, and then. Uh, at home, we got we got an Intellivision, and then my parents were like, "This is too complicated for your sister," okay. so they got an Atari Twenty Six Hundred, actually the Sears version of the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. Because my mom worked at Sears. Why was, was the Intellivision too complicated? Was that the one that had all the like the like the foam pad thing? Yeah, or? yeah, the things you didn't actually use. But okay, it was too. But then she never played the Twenty Six Hundred, and I right. just. But it was fine because my friend Jim got an Intellivision, and we could go over there and play baseball and football, and right, you know. Okay. What well, was so? What were the games that you liked the best from that era? Oh, those are definitely the sports games. Like, that would be the things that we would get into heated arguments about. I mean, right. I don't know if you've ever seen Atari 2600 football, but it's pretty horrible. Yep. yep. Uh, but then eventually there was stuff like River Raid was one that was really good that kind of stood out. And then Star Something, where you actually use, like, the difficulty selector, did something in the game. Like, they were right. trying to use everything they could. They possibly could, yeah. But, yeah, even, like, the early skiing ones were fun. Like, there's a lot of, uh, yeah, just dumb, stupid... Right. So was this was this like a main hobby of yours, or was it just like kind of like a side part of your life? Oh, definitely. I I, I remember 
like in high school, um, saving enough money to buy a cartridge. And okay. the, like the friend was like, what are you spending money on? <laughs> but even then, like I'd go to the arcades, I'd have the like, oh, if I just, you know, skip lunch this day, I'd have this much money and I could play this many games. And, you know, like, uh, yeah, just playing a bunch of stuff in the arcade. We played, we'd regularly go to the arcade. Yeah, it's uh, such a different, I mean, not only are games, you know, like, Games are so there's so many way games are available now, but like there's also so many free to play games that you know a kid theoretically with internet connection should be able to play. Yes, definitely for for nothing. And it's hard to remember that what hard to remember that headspace of I have seven quarters and I have to figure out how best to use them in an hour's worth of time. Yeah, yeah, they are probably not skipping lunch so they could play um, what Wizards of War. That was a good one. Mm -hmm. Like there's just a bunch of like. Great but simple games back then. Um, yeah. Yeah. Did you, so uh, did you get, did you follow down the console path or did you guys eventually get computers or what? Uh, what, com- what com- computers. So I did like the Timex Sinclair. Mm-hmm. You remember, you could get like the 16, I don't know what, it was 16 something of RAM, probably like, right. like just a tiny thing, but it 16K or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, Commodore's, uh, a RIC 20, okay. Commodore 64, and then eventually the big purchase was the Amiga 2000 when I was in college. Okay. So like I was playing all of that while like the Nintendo stuff was going on, and Eric played the Nintendo stuff, and I'd go over there, um, and, but really like at college, I, Nintendo was for Tecmo Bowl, right. and that was about it. Yeah. Otherwise, we would just um, play a lot of Amiga stuff. Yeah, I did Commodore and Amiga too. That was my my basic background. So. Yeah, and I mean, and back in the day, uh, uh, don't do this, kids. <laughs> but like, everyone just pirated like yeah. crazy for those systems. Like, the library had a official computer meet, mm-hmm. and people would just take their was it 1541 drives. Yeah. And you could hook them up without having to hook them up to a computer. Yep. And they would just have them like laid out all across the tables, just copying stuff, and then eventually BBSs and you know all of that kind of stuff. Yep. Uh, did you? What, so what games did you get into the most during that era? Because those those are games you could play for you know hundreds of hours if like you really found the right one for your personality. Or just they were just super frustrating, <laughs> right. basically yeah. hard. Yeah. Um, I mean, definitely like SimCity was probably the first one that really just overtook and sunk a ton and ton of time into because yeah, it had that. Um, you know, the Civilization series, obviously. Um, Archon. Okay. Uh, Mule, Race and Destruction set. Okay. Would you play Mule with your friends? Like, you got that the full experience with it? Did that Every so often. A lot of times I just played that alone. Sure. Well, um, having nobody else in my family who played video games, really, uh, mm-hmm. I realized every game could be a single-player game if you sure. try hard enough. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of that. But occasionally, occasionally... Um, and then definitely once in college, like then everything became a multiplayer game, even single player games. Right. You were sitting around drinking beer, talking as other people were playing them. Right, right. I mean, what type of experiences were you looking for? Like, uh... I don't, I don't think I was that sophisticated thinking about it. It was literally mm-hmm. just we just played through everything and then started messing with stuff. So like, I remember, uh, oh god, was it the Rambo game? I think. Mm-hmm. was like the first one where we could not beat it so we just started trying to hack it right. and just peeking and poking into things and sure. seeing like what you could change and finally I think we got like unlimited health or something and then we played it and so just did a lot of stupid things like that we did a lot of just dumb BBS kind of things you know at one point uh, me and Eric 
and a couple other people. A couple other people started it, and then I, I had been living in New Orleans and moved back up, and they were doing a thing, um, um, zombie, this zombie game where uh, you would go to hell and fight famous dead people. Right. It was like all a text adventure game. So we spent a lot of time doing that as well. Right. Um, and just sinking time into that, and that that went that that had a bad ending. Right. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask. Like one of the things kind of unique about like computers, like the Commodore, is they kind of like really invite you to mess with it. Because oh yeah. It literally starts with a command prompt, you know. And uh, I was wondering if you kind of got into that. Oh yeah, a lot of a lot of stuff in Basic, and then I remember Blitz Basic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yeah, like. Uh, at some point, like his girlfriend at the time, I had like written this entire little program and gave it to her because she had one and like a lot of stuff like that kind of thing. Like always just messing around and trying things there. I mean, at that point, uh, Eric and I had dreams of making games and okay, because he, he had a, he had gotten the Atari four hundred also. Right, sure, yeah. And uh, we actually moved in together like when we were when we were too young to. To, to support living in a place where you pay rent every month. Sure. Uh, All right, let's back up a little bit then. When, when did you meet Eric? Like, when, when is this happening? 18, 19? Okay, like starting in college? M- mutual, mutual, yeah, mutual friend. He was in his last year of high school. Uh-huh. I was in my first year of college, mutual friend. Um, there's this, our hacking group, the 2300 Club, I which see. was a police bar that you could go drink in when you're like 16 because, I don't know. Wow, the, like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> It was this weird downtown bar. Um, was the drinking age 18? Or? Yeah, it was, it was 18. Okay. All but like right. you were just literally drinking alongside the cops and they were just like, right. I don't care. Like it's Cleveland <laughs> cops and there, were, there was like more crime than underage drinking that they cared about. Right, right? Yeah. Um, and that was really just a lot of goofing around. Our one friend John had this uh, BBS called like Blotto Land that was like some big hacking thing. I don't know. So it was back in the day where like phone codes, MCI was like a five-digit password to make long distance. So you would just, I mean, it's pretty easy to come right. up with a five-letter password and mm-hmm. make enough guesses and then you have long distance. And it was like that kind of stuff we did, just dumb stuff, right? Right. Okay. But after you met Eric, you guys talked about the idea of like making games together? Like if we, had, we had, uh, he had actually actually been programming stuff on the Atari 400 and gotten published in the magazines like oh. where you know like yep. you would, would have like all the code and you'd have mm-hmm. to type it in and yep. be all, yeah. So he had been doing that. And then we moved in together and really fell in love with this one racing game uh, that I, for the life of me, can't remember on the 400. And we had come up with the idea of, you remember there used to be that hook and ladder game in the arcade? Where like one of you was driving the fire truck and the other was in the back of the oh, wow. the ladder of the fire truck and you had to figure out how to do it. And we're like, what if that guy had guns instead and you okay. throw around shooting people? Okay. Uh, so yeah, uh, and that was like our dream to start. And then um, he had actually then went off with some other friends to do stuff, and I would just come down and interrupt them to play um, Powerball Two. Yeah, was mm-hmm. it Powerball? Right, that's the name of it, right? The Bitmap Brothers? Speedball? Speedball, Speedball. Too. yeah. Oh, that's Speedball too. That's a great game. Yeah. yeah. That game was so fast. Like, yeah. It was, yeah, so good. It was so game. so good, though. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so there's always, like, something we were kicking around trying to think of to do. It was, like, between that and every job I ever had that I had a um, copier, I would do, like, newsletters. Like, I didn't know The Onion existed, but I was doing versions of The Onion. Right, okay. Um, and just giving them out to friends or whatever. Right, right. sure. Okay. Um... Did you, I mean, did you think about that there was a professional games industry? Like, not, a, I don't, I'm not really at that point. I mean, we knew it existed and like, 
I said we tried to kind of think of it that way, but we had a really weird way. I mean, when you're in Cleveland, you're pretty isolated from thinking like those kind of things are real and you're just right. kind of on the outside of it. It was more just I knew I wanted to write. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at some point, I remember probably like sixth grade, I think I went to my mom and asked, the Stephen King guy writes a lot of books. Does he do this for a living? Right. <laughs> yeah, probably does. Uh, I don't know. You're sixth grade. Uh, but, uh, you know, and it was like that. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what I want to do. Okay. So that's what you were, like, aiming to be, maybe, like, if you could accomplish it. Yeah, but, like, in my family, you would not say that out loud, right? Even that day, I did not say that out loud. I'm like, okay. yeah, sure, I'm going to go, you know, get a computer science degree or something. What did, uh, what did your parents do? Um, my dad, um, it's a good question. He hustled. He did a lot of sales stuff, a lot okay. of... I mean, when the times are tough, he played cards for a living. Wow, um, really? He, uh, he was a Like guy. poker, basically? Uh, poker gin. Gin was his big one. Gin okay. is really annoying as a kid growing up playing gin with him because he's the kind of guy like... Like gin rummy? No, gin. Gin. I guess I don't know what... Yeah, gin, gin rummy, you're, you're, it's t- you're putting down cards before you're all done. Gin has a whole thing about knocking and some other stuff but it's cards are serious in my family okay but, but so, so but gin is still based off of like three of a kind and yeah and yeah and you're doing points and there's like hollywood scoring or regular scoring and there's a whole thing wow i didn't um, even know you could do that for money like, but he was the kind of person like after the third discard he'd tell you what you have in your hand and you're like oh. wow really? like you learn okay. not to put your cards together and you'd have to look at your hands separate just to hide it from him and <laughs> But the cards were super serious in our house. Like, we'd play hearts as well. Okay. And hearts is like the meanest game, right? Sure. Right, yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's great that moment in hearts when you realize the other person is like, like, a blank of a, you know, shooting the moon or whatever it's called. You know? Yeah. Like, oh, sh- yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know it was super, like, in our, it was like, my parents never cared that we were kids. Like, it was always right. serious. And you were just going to lose when you were a kid. And that was, that was fine. Right. So. Okay. Well, that's, that's actually good training for a lot of different game design things. For, like, <laughs> Um, but uh, wow, that's I would I uh, if you could make money off of cards, that seems to me like that would be a very stressful like uh, way to pursue it. If yeah, you, he was he was always really good in it though. Okay. He was always like, I mean, I think it's like anything of if you do it all the time, yeah, you get better. But then also there's certain people that are just really good at it, and he was just really good at it. Like he was always playing. He always growing up, he would have a, a poker game at our house once a week. Sure. Kind of thing. That was like the the, the closeted game. Um, but that was for serious money. And like they would be up all night. And then, you know, as kids, we'd be there at like, you know, seven in the morning. It'd still be some drunk, sure. drunk, grumpy guy trying to turn it back around. He'd give yeah, you some yeah. money and you'd be like, Ooh. Wow. I always thought that if you like, if there's people who are able to not necessarily make a living, but at least like help support themselves with that then the flip side is true too, right? There must be people who are making money from something else and yes. losing it on cards. Yes. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There's a, there's, a, there's a misery component to that for sure, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. yeah, but then he was really like a sales, sales, sales guy, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, so like being a writer would be a little too far out there for like, it was just, it's a hard thing to say out loud, I guess, because it's so speculative. Even after I graduated college with a degree in theater, my mom's like, hey, the post office is hiring. You okay. know, your cousin got a job there. It's a really good place. Right. So, okay. yeah. How come you took theater in college? Well, I originally took computer science. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, and again, I'm old. So 1984, computer science at Cleveland State meant punch cards wow. and Fortran. Okay. Were you going into it kind of thinking like, you know, yeah, I've been messing around with computers. It'd be fun to make games or something like that. And like, so I guess I'll learn how to program. Or I, 
I wish I was that deliberate. I, it was uh -huh. just like, yeah, computer stuff. I'll figure something out here. I know how to program and Fortran class is okay. But like you would literally have to go submit your job, wait 24 hours to get it back. Right. So there and, and when you're learning a language, yeah. That's it's a really shitty iteration loop. Yeah, I mean, even now, like I remember what it used to be like to have to wait 15 minutes for your whatever program to compile. And even now, if I have to wait like 30 seconds, it's like, oh, I'm losing, yeah, I'm yeah. losing so much time here. Um, but you know, 24, and that's it's also must have been really weird because you know you had a you know you might have had a Commodore 64 at home, which you could have yes. programmed on directly. Yeah, exactly. And you must have been wondering like, why am I? Why am I in the Stone Age here? Yeah, so I was doing that and then also taking a writing class, right? My favorite professor ever uh, for how much of an idiot jerk he was. Of He read my first thing and he's like, well, I'll give you a B in this, but I think you're going to get a D in this class. Like your very first thing you handed in, he gave you the grade for it and then what he thought you were worth. And I'm like, I don't need this. I just wait, wait, don't. wait, back up. Hold up. He did what? You... He, your first grade was what the paper, whatever you wrote was. Yeah. But then what he just somehow gleaned off of you, thought you would get for the class. Because he wanted to let you know when it was still time that you could drop the class. So he gave you a B on the paper, but he said you're going to get a D in the class? Yeah. Wow, that's... <laughs> yeah, it's not so good. he's basically saying this is a flash in the pan, like he's you, like, got, you he's got lucky? Like, he's like, you should drop the class. Okay. I, at that point, I had like dyed blonde, or dyed orange hair. I think I was at orange at that point. Okay. And in the 80s, um, you kids with dyed hair now, <laughs> we used to get beat up for that, okay? So you owe me something for that. Right. Uh, why do you why do you dye your hair? I don't know. I was bored. You're bored. Some friends suggested it. Like it was funny. I've met people who are like, "Oh man, I thought you were this." You know, I saw that you. Had, I wanted white hair, and okay. it ends up if you strip all the hair color out of your hair, what you end up with is orange. Oh, okay. And then someone called me Pumpkinhead, and I'm like, "Oh, I got a nickname now. That's kind of cool." <laughs> and uh, it was just always like as a gag with some friends or something, or like. It was never like I was trying to have some fashion statement. It was more just the people I hung out with were just goofing around, doing stuff, making each other laugh, and that was one of the ways to do it, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, so you're okay. Oh, oh, so you were, he, did, he did not class. appreciate me yes, I think, okay. in that class. <laughs> he he was a very much like a pipe in hand, old school kind of yeah. writer. Right. Okay. Um, and so did you go to theater then, basically because like the writing department was kind of not... No, I got kicked out of Cleveland State. Oh, okay. All right. I failed out of that. Um, then just stopped doing much of anything. I was living out of the house then. There's there's some other stuff going on mm -hmm. that um, kind of just lost that year. Came back and said, okay, I'll go to the local community college. Right. Um, met a professor there in... I think like, it was probably intro to theater or something, um, Michael Stone. And he just kept challenging me. He's just like, you know, you can screw around all your life and why are you computer science? Why, that makes no sense. Why are you doing that? And kind of just challenged me a lot to like actually do something that I wanted to do. Okay. Um, and so really super helpful. And uh, so I started working in the theater department, um, started taking some theater classes, realized, hey, this crosses over with some of the stuff I know how to do. I'd work construction a lot and had done a lot of building stuff. I knew how to do that, that kind of stuff. So like scene building I could do and help out in and like those okay. kind of things. And so Yeah, so ask like what so what appealed to you about theater? Like well, or his at least his version of in it. In my version, I was gonna write eventually for it. Okay. But in the meantime it was being around creative people that weren't scared about being creative. I see. 
Um, and that, so like this is that's their goal. Like it's, yeah, they're not yeah, they're just being open about it, yeah. right? And so and it was just fun. And so graduated or not graduated, just went through that year at Tri C, and then said, well, you know, I should I should go to a four year college. But when friends go into Kent State, I'll go to Kent State. Um, we'll share a dorm room together. That'd be cool. Right. And so yeah, went through um, Tri C, um, which people not community college, mm-hmm. but. It was really good. Sure. It was really good. From my history professor was really great. Um, there's just a couple people in there that were just super, like once they realized that you cared enough to pay attention, sure. right. were like, hey, you know, I'll, I'll give you some extra back. So it was great. Yeah. Um, but yes, and I went to uh, the summer doing um, professional theater with Kenley Players. Okay. Where we did a black pet and leather shoes and nonsense, right? To, to tell you the kind of crowd of the Midwest crowd they were going for. Wow. Were you performing? No, I was just backstage. Okay. And then um, for black pet and leather shoes, I flick. I was on the scenery and flicked the lights right. during one scene or something, right? Sure. Like dumb stuff like that. But then did when, you did you did, think did you think about performing or was that just not? Oh no 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 no, okay. no 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 no. <laughs> right. uh, I can public speak now. Okay, back right. then I could not at all. Right, sure. Um, it was terrifying to me. But so, um, but it was just fun. Like, again, you know, it was just fun and it was people. And it was just a great time of that entire cast and crew. We would go out every single night drinking and bowling. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, I was the only straight guy, uh, like in the group. Okay. Of, like a breeder man, they made me an outfit. Breeder man. Um, that and, Yeah. <laughs> okay. And it was just, yeah, it was just, it was a really Great, fun group of people. Sure. And then yeah. um, from that, I picked up that I became an IATSE casual and did some of the rock shows as well. You did it for sorry, extra I money. IATSE. What's that? Um, International Stage Fan Union. Oh, okay. So then I also did, um, I did uh, um, uh, Akron Ballet one summer as well. Mm-hmm. Like those are all So like you can fo- jump from different groups to different groups. Yeah, and those are just fun jobs. And yep. like... Um, I was an assistant electrician or something, you know, would be the official title. But it was just like always in those kind of, in those kind of things, right? It was yeah. fun. Okay. Uh, I am curious just to, because I don't know if we'll be able to segue back to this, but now that you've been in the games industry for, for quite a while and you, you know what programming actually means, do you think if you had entered, you know, if you were like going to college nowadays, like that path would have actually worked out for you? No. No. Okay. No. So uh, eventually I went back and did programming again lightly when I came back um, with to Cleveland and went to work the same place Eric was working with a data processing company. Right. And like we were the smart programmers there. Mm-hmm. We weren't that smart. Okay. Right. Like you, you go outside of there and it's just there's there's a point of keeping everything in my head that is just like I'm, you know, like I got through calculus. Mm-hmm. So my, my math degree out of in the theater department is calculus versus whatever regular math. Right. But like that was it. That was my limit. Like I was going no further than that. There's like it help, it's helpful for logic thinking and it's helpful for a bunch of things, but like yeah, C plus plus is uh is yeah. is beyond me. Yeah. I think it's I, I kinda wish that a lot of high school curriculums uh, would actually focus more on like it feels to me like this is such a like a tangent there's anything to do with this but i feel like calculus is such a waste of time for people in high school like i don't understand why they focus on it i wish they would focus on like logic and probability which are all things that actually could be useful to you in your life and would lead people more into if if they want to program it's much more like 
calculus. I don't use any calculus. Period. Yeah, I haven't ever. And you know, I still do. You know, I'm an active programmer, right? And like, it's it's really there's just a few specific things you need to program, and they're not. It doesn't seem like they're emphasized. They're yeah, I think so. I think programming actually, as I always think of it the reverse, is I always think they should teach some programming just because it teaches you logic. Yeah, in yep. a way, and just it's a good way to do it. If people learned logic in school and actually learned it, the whole world would be way better than it is. Yeah. Because so often when something stupid's being said, you're like, look at that logically. Do you really <laughs> think that's right. how it would work? Like, Let's sketch this out. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Like calculus to me just seems like one of those like. Uh, uh, this isn't the right term, but purity tests. It's just one of these like rites of passage that yes. you send kids through just to see like how much raw, you know, analytical intelligence they have. But it just I don't know. It doesn't seem like the best path. At any rate, um, so okay. So you were doing you were doing stage work for you know all sorts of uh, random things. Um, but then I mean, then what happened basically? So then I just in theater. Uh... I started then, I actually produced the um, Student Play Festival. Mm -hmm. So previously it had been kind of, I don't know, I thought boring instead. Um, started doing it where I included the other arts. So there was, um, the music department was included. We put okay. up art from the art department and tried right. to be inclusive that way. It's one of those things like looking back, I'm like, oh, Man, I had the roots of kind of how I think about things now, about right. like joining these things together and equally. Cross disciplines. And... Absolutely hating meetings where... Yeah. My advisor would yell at me that I didn't have meetings, but I'm like, but is everything getting done? He's like, yes, but yeah, I go talk to people. Like, you can do it a different way. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was actually really fun and helpful, but went to uh, New York at one point with one of my professors and uh, took me up with um, Circle Rep Theater that they were doing um, Prelude to a Kiss at the time, okay. which was like a big breakout. and. Yep. Like, a uh, bunch of bunch of famous people were all in their offices around that time. Is, this, is this the original the yes. version of it? Okay. Yeah, so it was the off-Broadway one. It was just moving to Broadway. And so some of the stage, some of the people who were like literally just hanging out on stage all of a sudden were getting um, SAG cards and stuff. And right. it was like, it was an exciting time for there. Yeah. But the job I was going to take ended up deciding not to leave. And also I thought, well, $50 a week in New York City is going to be a little hard. Because <laughs> be yeah. like I paid for most of my college. Uh -huh. um, myself so like I can't really afford to do that so that's not an answer yeah. so yeah were you working I mean were you able to when you say you paid for college and you were paying for yourself was that through the theater work or was it through others other were you doing other jobs other mainly other jobs so a lot of like so first back in the day um, Kent State's not that expensive as school right. um, I got Pebble grants yeah I got a couple other grants that made up a lot of the money and then um, for living I Wash pots and pans. I did a lot of, if you worked in the cafeteria, you could always eat. Sure. Uh, the people in the cafeteria knew I didn't take smoke breaks and I just worked. So they uh -huh. could go give me things and they were super happy. So they'd be like, take this food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So I always ate really well in college. Um, and that was really kind of what I did. Right. So, and then that was enough money to pay for the rest of the stuff. Okay. Um, all right. And uh, so you were, you know, you didn't think you could make it work in New York off of that type of thing. Yeah, so yeah. Gr graduated college, um, toured with a friend's band, just helping them out for a bit. That fell apart. Went to go get a job. Uh, applied for a few things that I probably thought were theater related that weren't, I mean, there's not that much theater in Cleveland. There is touring companies, but not that many, you know. Yeah. And then uh, went to, uh, I always remember, uh, Euclid. Went to a inside sales job for Saws and got as far as the lobby, turned around and walked out. 
And now I would understand that it was depression. Back then I didn't know. I just stopped doing anything for like six months and right. just played Mahjong. Okay. Right. I right. uh, got good at it. Uh, but yeah, it was just kind of like, a, and then I started painting houses. Okay. Because I don't know. You have to do something, I guess. Yeah. Right. Just, but it was like one of those days I just woke up one day and I'm like, oh, I should start doing something again. Right. Uh, and I know how to do these things so I can, I can paint houses. And that was actually a great job. Uh, boss is super awesome person. Sure. Right. Um, were you, uh, were you still into video games throughout this whole period? Oh yeah. 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 So I still had my Amiga. Um, the friend that I lived with, Ken, he was going to Case Western Reserve for computer science at the time. And like, there's a whole bunch of this stuff like just kind of kept going on, but it just was, it was not being productive. Right. Um, and so then it was at that time, just my girlfriend at the time, now wife, I just said, Hey, we should, um, live together. Mm Mm-hmm. But we all know too many people here, so let's move to New Orleans for a while. Oh, wow, okay. So we moved down to New Orleans, uh, didn't know anybody. Back in the day, pre-internet, like you have to subscribe to the local newspaper, sure. the Times-Picayune, for a while and look for jobs. And Is there a reason you picked New Orleans? I mean, it's a cool city, obviously, but like... My family has a weird thing of, like, my parents, my sister have all lived in Louisiana at some point. Okay, I see. I have a great love and... I have equal amounts of love and hate for the South. Sure, right. Um, but so we, we moved down there. I actually worked at Old Time Photos for a while, taking pictures of drunk people dressed in um, <laughs> Civil curious, War era garb. garb. Yeah. yeah, super awesome. Uh, everyone has a gun there, so you'd have to hold their gun for them. Uh, right. It was great. And then so as you a, hold their gun while they're getting their picture taken. Well, you'd, you'd, you'd hold it in the back. You'd, take, oh, you'd put it in the back. Okay. So it's safe. I see. Um, as a weird... And then I was a bartender for a while, and that was like a great job. Right. Because bartender was like, uh, there's a different um, group coming through every week. Mm-hmm. So you get your patter down, like we would do magic. And jo- like my joke was uh, when the, at the doors when Southern Hospitality ends and I would just be kind of curt with people. Right. <laughs> uh, and that was like a gag. And I was like, okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> but yeah, so that was fun. But then eventually came back up to Cleveland to work with Eric at the data processing place. Okay. Data processing. That's not- yeah, we did uh, yeah, a lot of like mailings and really exciting stuff. Yeah, those two words specifically kind of like have a, uh, what is it, an aura of like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> oh, no, it was, it was a horrible place. It was in this old warehouse that was unair conditioning, super uh-huh. hot. I worked from 3 to 11 and I was paid nothing, except I found out if I worked extra hours, I could get overtime. So I just started essentially working two jobs. Right. And did that and the boss is like dude if you want to hustle fine right. hustle right so were you like you guys were just punching in numbers all day basically or no like... it was um really taking what other numbers people had punched in and doing some processing on top of them so we were using at the time fox pro um and just yeah like deciding what records should be printed out and mailed and all of this but it was like this place where we would have computers over here and in the other place People had bricks and they'd name their brick and they'd put like, do not steal my brick. And that brick was used for like folding or something. So it was a weird mix in a very uh, rough neighborhood in the middle of Cleveland. But we did play Doom there. Okay. Which because you a, had computers on a network? Like so we had computers thing? on a network and the day Doom came out that we got it, we downloaded it. Right. You were, and, you were one of those people who downloaded it from the first server yes. and like, okay. Yeah, and then we uh, got a case of beer, put it between us all, and back-to-back played, you know, through the night. Right. Um, yeah, and it was just like, oh. Yeah. This is it. Yeah. 
Did you so you guys start playing multiplayer a lot? Like, well, yeah, at the yeah. office we would all the time, right? Yeah. But that was then also then that would be the jump of why I can't be on the Amiga anymore because I need to play this yep. thing and like okay. then eventually to Quake World. And I've met Zoid now and work with Zoid, but I joke with him that three way of capture the flag. Like I owe so much of my wasted years of my life to that game um, because we just I just played that nonstop. But yeah, that was kind of the trajectory there. Yeah. And then I left there, went to a nonprofit, and just kept working. But it was like you know like three or forty six Dependium days. So if you run a big job, you got a lot of downtime. Sure. So if you have a second computer, you can play games while you wait. Right. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So you were you're working and playing games. Yes. It's a good combo. <laughs> it's a good combo. And then eventually left that and did started going off on my own with Eric. And then uh-huh. Eric and I both going formed, off on your own, meaning Well, just um consulting. Okay. Um did some stuff with like um at the time it was called uh what did they call the site? It's now open secrets, but Larry Makinson was doing some stuff with trying to do research on um like voter uh, stuff for like the elections and what, okay. right. what, what was happening there with donations and when people would be like, hey, all these electricians got tool money and they all donated to the same person is right. what's happening. So like we're using our software to help with there. We're doing some like post-payment audit, which is super exciting. No, it's not. Um, and just like stuff like that and magazine companies we were working for. And so then that's when we started a company called Murray and Sons. Okay. All right. Because we're like, everyone, everyone else has these very tech names, like ATX or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. And we're like, let's make it personable and then something that sounds like it's been around for a while. Right. Where did the name Murray come from? Oh, we were going we were gonna to do from, um, remember my three sons? They're mm-hmm. Mick Murray. Okay. And for whatever reason, we just did Murray instead. Right, sure. Right. And then people would literally believe that we had they, a dad. So they figured you were the sons, you and Eric. Yeah, Basically. and so they, we had people who thought we were brothers, and that like the old man, because we'd be like, oh, the old man setting the price. We got no say in this. <laughs> and people bought that. Um, so it was a way to talk about pricing. Yeah. yeah. Well, they must have assumed you guys had been around for a while, also. Yeah. <laughs> and we 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 did a lot of good work. We worked for some big companies for a while as okay. well, doing you know stuff. Right. Okay. So, presu- would would you still have thought at this time in terms of like? I would still like to be a writer? Yes. Yes. Okay. Very much so. Very much so. But this was like, hey, this gig is now starting to give us some free time. And that's, you know, at that point, the internet had come around. It had just started. Yeah. And I had one thought in my head of how simple I am is, hey, so when I was a bartender in New Orleans, every week a new group would come by. And so I could repeat the same joke because they hadn't heard it. The new group sure. hadn't heard it. Right. So the internet's millions of people. So we can just make one joke and then a million people will come by. Right. Like we don't need to update it. We just do that one joke. Yeah. But I had no idea about like how to make a web page or anything in those very early days. And so, I mean, very early of the internet was uh, some guy inviting me to his house to learn um, Unix mm-hmm. as a way to connect to the internet. Oh, and then there was someone else like that day had a web interface for Windows. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go that one. Right. That's this would have been style. like 96 or 7, something yeah. like that? Yeah, yeah right okay. in that era. Uh, yeah, probably 95, 96. Right, okay. At that point, you're still using like Gopher and Archie and like... Right. It was all confusing. Right. And But the thing, I mean, when you, you know, when you think in terms of like, I want to write, would you say it's kind of like you want to express yourself? Like I'm trying to get 
kind of deeper into like what it is that you want to communicate like how how do you want to be a writer at that point most of the stuff is still comedy stuff i mean like i think every writer always has the like the great novel in the back of their head mm-hmm. kind of thing but the reality is like you know like eric and i were just trying to crack each other up right um and then you know that's where um old man murray came from then was i'd found a computer shopper magazine you remember those mm-hmm. yeah. and in the back of it they're like you can get the game myth for 30 bucks right and the game myth is selling for 60 at the time. And I'm like, that's a markup. Right. We can do that. If we put a web about a web page, we can sell this game. Hmm. Sure. Yeah. And that was literally the start of that. And that was we started selling games, but they the people that we bought them from sent us this list of all the games. And I just started entering them and I got like the third game, and I'm like, this is a crap game. I can't put their <laughs> description of this in here. So I wrote my own little description. Then I went back and I did like 10 of the, what we would call mini reviews and then showed it to Eric. And I was like, oh man, we got to do this. This is a really good idea. Right. Um, and then we, we just started doing it. Yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't realize at all it started as a store. Yeah. Like, did, I mean, did that continue? It wasn't just like... One of the problems was the store became too much. We had to have my wife help us and we shipped every day and we'd have to go to like to this post office and they knew us that and it was just like a giant pain in the ass with sure. very little markup yeah and then we got three dollar cpms from ugo and we're like why sell games when we could just do the the ads money right and that was sure. way easier and so we stopped selling games right yeah i always wondered like i always bought all my games from this one advertisement at the back of a compute gazette for the conversation before and because it was like half as much as it'd be in a store and i always wondered like what is the deal with this like your company oh. in Portland that sells games out of a warehouse or something. The whole like. the whole deal with it is they're gray market games. So they're games that are slated to go out of country, so they're untaxed. Oh. Okay. And then they're sold back in. So there's the first sale doctrine, which went to court over shampoo being sold this way. I don't I Okay, wow, you're <laughs> totally looked this up when we started because we started doing this and I'm like, what the hell is going on? I was on expecting here? this answer, but go yeah. ahead. No, and so there's this whole thing of like once you buy something, it's yours to sell as you want. Whoever yeah. sold it to you and knowing that it wasn't leaving the country, it's their fault. Well, to pit for the taxes. Yeah. Okay. Not ours. And so yeah, that's what we did. We sold games that were essentially gray market games that were slated to go to other countries that never went to those countries and instead stayed it in the US. It still seems so weird. If you buy it from someone else, then you don't need to because isn't everything that you sell you buy it from someone else? Like <sighs> yeah, I don't know. It's it's all murky. Right now all the all the all the people that we were buying them from were all so murky as well yeah. and weird and yeah. Wow. Okay. All right. But um, but I mean, but yeah, remember like in the very beginning we would we would post up new games and then go post in Usenet. Right. And be like, hey! And then we would get hate mail of like, you're not allowed to make fun out of a game you're selling. That's illegal. <laughs> I don't think it is. Um, well, I guess the other weird thing is you're, you guys are totally disconnected from the actual distributors, right? So, yes. you know, it, it, there's no, I, whatever, I don't know, conflict of interest is a weird way to put it, but like, there's no reason you guys can't trash yeah. something you want to trash. Beyond the fact that if you trash it, presumably you're going to sell less copies. Yeah. Of Right. Yeah, yeah, and so, yeah, and you know, and, and at the time, the internet felt really small, and we're just, you know, we're we're screaming into the void. We're just kids right. in Cleveland, like getting ten people a day to come to our site. Sure. Well, wait, hold on. I'm still a little confused. So, let's say game comes up, you guys hate it, you put up a negative review. Are you buying like twenty copies of that game? Oh no, no, never hold stock. Okay, no stock at all. So that's we were always, like the people would we would do weekly. So at the time, thank God, before Amazon, you could ship something in two weeks and still be 
okay. prompt, okay. right? And so that's how it all worked. So they would order it. You would order it from wherever you normally get it. Yeah. And you're just pure middleman getting it to them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We were the middleman just marking it up. And so like a good portion of your life was you boxes would be delivered to you and you would box them up and send them to someone else. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's like... Obviously, inherently, there is a huge amount of wasted yes. <laughs> yes. everything in that process. But yes, okay, all right. I, I yeah, the value we added is that we made fun of the thing we were selling. Right, that's literally it. Did you think at all about like I shouldn't be making fun of something that could make me money? No, because it's the thing of if we would just have said nice things, no one would ever would have heard of our store. Sure. Yeah. So yeah. all of a sudden, like I remember, I think Mark Asher was probably the first name that started talking to us okay. after that if you remember he, he wrote back in the day right sure and like tom chick and all of those people sure. and it was like okay this got us attention so yeah definitely still and also just made us laugh and especially back then 90 percent of what we did was if we could crack each other up sure do you, do you remember any specific um like some of the earliest examples of ones that, that got the first attention for you guys oh ultima online okay that was the one of like we were some guy insisted we were gonna be sued <laughs> What did you say about Ultima Online? Just, it was bad. I, I, so I tried to get, I, we, we scammed a lot on Ultima Online. Like, you remember how, like, that was, that was actually fun. If, like, so freeform, you could put a chair yep. in front of a building and right. say it's a $5 entry fee. Yep. And people would give it to you and then want to kill you, but they couldn't because it's inside the yep. city and, yep. like, all that stuff. It was always right? unclear if the stuff was, like, a bug or a feature or whatever. Yeah, right? and, so. and it's one of, that's one of those games that, to be honest, it was actually a way better game than we gave it credit for, and we knew it, but it was still fun to make fun of. How would you have time? I mean, get, it seems like you'd have to play a lot of games to be able to keep up with like producing enough content for like bad reviews. Essentially. Well, first of all, remember you can say something bad about a game just from the title. You don't okay. actually have to play it. All right, good, but, good to know. Uh, <laughs> it was also if at the time we were doing the data processing stuff, and yeah. often that meant we were getting a job set up or running a job, and then we would just play. Yeah. We would play like when Tribes came out, when Myth. We were just the entire afternoon we just played games we right. were not the startup hard-hitting yep. charging people we were like the hey we made enough money today let's go play games people and that's right. what we did we played just a ton of games yeah did your bosses or whatever have any oh no that was our company that oh, was, oh because was you guys were company. consulting at that point yeah right? yeah okay yeah. okay great wow you, well you did a good stuff how much do you remember like okay so you had your consulting business which presumably was paying a lot of the bills do you have any idea what remember what you were making from old man murray then like just the the so it's three, side of the three dollar cpms and at the height of that we had also gotten like sean baby yep. pointless waste of time um crazy grandpa and a couple other sites uh-huh. and we were making i don't know I mean, it could have been 10,000. It had to be a month. It had to be less than that, right? Okay. But there's some people just that were killing it. We were never smart enough uh, to, to maximize to, it. To go after it, right? Okay. And then that market just went to hell. And When did that happen? Like 2001? Okay. Right? Somewhere, like somewhere in the dot com. Like, so there's that whole point of like UGO's like, hey, come out to California. We've put, taken an ad out in this magazine for you. And you're like, ugh. And then it's like, hey, we're well, going to pay you a tenth of what we were paying you, and you just have to take it shut up, right? Right. And uh, Do you remember what the market factors were that, that changed that? Well, there's the dot-com right. crash. But for us, it was a twofold thing. So at the time... Because there was so much money going into companies that were online. That they, they just had to advertise all, somewhere, yeah, and they were just they throwing had, it in the advertising yeah, huge money, budget, right? right. And when they crashed... And, 
And that was, you know, at the time when UGO first approached us, we actually went to Jeff Keeley, and we're like, hey, you're on UGO, what do you think of them? Not realizing he had, it was like 14 or something at the time, right? <laughs> and he's like, oh yeah, they're great. So, you know, we signed up. Uh, and then I went to go visit UGO, and they're just all playing Counter-Strike. It's an office of like 90 people playing Counter-Strike. And I'm right. like, to Eric, we should cash that check. The <laughs> data comes in every time, because this is not going to last. Wow. But so that crashed the same time uh, when 9-11 hit. A lot of, at that point, our consulting business was um, like VNU, which is a big publishing company in New York. Mm-hmm. And that just stopped. Okay. Like that dried up. So everything dried up at the same time, which was kind of a... A sinking feeling. Right. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting just to think in terms of like you guys were sort of like surfing the wave of the dot com to do the stuff that you enjoyed. Yes. You know, writing about and talking about and like you know, so it was it was good times for a while, but like inevitably something else will like that can't last forever, I guess. So. Well, but so like it was like the early so the early days. Like I mean, at one point we hosted Penny Arcade for a while uh-huh. because their servers kick them off or something like it was like really no one knew like is this gonna last does this end does this have a season are we gonna burn out and then you know for eric and i as the site grew it became this problem of we couldn't make the same jokes anymore because it felt like we were punching down not up Hmm. like when we started no one heard of us we could sure everything was a target yeah but once you got big enough then all of a sudden you're like man these guys are working hard i don't want to bag them sure and so like a lot of the end ones are us picking weird topics like serious sam or something and just praising it right right um because that was just then we something we could do versus the other stuff and there's also just something about that angry energy and carrying it and trying to get worked up for some of those articles that just there's a point in your life you're like am i gonna do this for the rest of my life or sure am i gonna change yeah that's Uh, that's really actually that's really interesting topic i think because i guess you could imagine you could go down the road where that just becomes shtick right and yeah. like you know you know how to do it and you keep doing it yeah but like what's the point i guess yeah is it fun is it fun and is it rewarding and i mean then there are some people who i think like like the penny arcades credit yeah they made a whole industry around what they were doing and took it in a different way you know and, and different people at that time i think were more driven to do that or more equipped i mean you know, I mean, Steve took, um, um, what should I call it? Um, Steve Gibson, come on. Um, his website. Oh, my God. <laughs> and now he's over, he's over running publishing over at Gearbox. Okay. Right. Yeah. So, like, it, but, like, so everybody, oh, my God, I cannot believe I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get so beat up from not remembering the name of that. Oh. Uh, some of these names are familiar for me, but I, I was not as like engulfed in this world. Oh yeah, I mean, well, Blue, Blues News is still going. Sure, yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. So anything like or Shack News or whatever. Any of these. So things. Shack, Shack News. There you go. There you go. Right. That was it. Oh, it was. Yeah, okay. Sorry, see, sorry. Jeez, I knew it. Your God. It's in the sorry, <laughs> Steve. Of my brain. Uh, um, but, but no, but like we 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 we've we've met a couple times, you know, since then, and it's just like that. Like, who would have thought twenty years ago when we were doing that, this is where we end up, right? Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, no one knew what they were doing, and they 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 did make a plan, and they became successful accidentally because there were just other people like them around who were yeah. interested in this type of stuff, and you know there weren't you know people who had money didn't know to cater to these people yet, or at least how to you know yeah. maybe maybe they were spending money on endeavors, but they weren't working right because they weren't talking the right language basically. Yeah, and there were nice people in the industry, and like people like yeah we we got weird stuff, and then you know like. Um, at some point, Valve started becoming friends with us, and we actually had a, a Smack channel with them where we could email back and forth and just um, should talk each other. 
Right. Uh, and then they made a they made a version of um, Team Fortress Classic to play against us that like oh, right. okay. had some of our gags in it. Right. Um, and so there's like a lot of back and forth talking there. Um, and then yeah, then the one fateful day out of the blue, uh, Gabe just emailed and said, "Hey, do you want to come work at Valve?" Okay. So you'd, already, so you'd already had a little bit of contact with them. Yes. You know, kind of like yeah, some back and forth, and then it had fallen off, and then Gabe sent that email. And it was actually, I had stopped checking that email because it got so much spam to it. And they were <laughs> like, did you check, check your email? I'm like, oh. And I'm like, what you, you know, and so we just emailed back, like, well, can you tell us more? What, like, what year would this be? 2004. 2004, okay. And so it was just like, can you tell us more? He's like, no, just come out to Seattle and let's talk. Hmm, Okay. All right, well, tell me, tell me what happened. So we did. So right. um, came out to Seattle and so hung out with Gabe um, and a couple other people for three days. That was our interview. We didn't do a traditional interview at Valve. For three days. That's a lot. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, just talked. We did some like pretend we're working together and, okay. you know, like do some story generation and some kind of like, you know, writer's room kind of stuff. And Yeah. Like, uh, did they give you the topic, or were they were like, if you wanted to make a game, what would you do? It was more, um, they were looking, th- so at the time, there were, I think there were more thoughts on linear content, and so they're like, we well, need more writers for that. Hey, these guys are funny. Let's just take a take a shot on them. And you know, later finding out, there's a lot of people internally that didn't think we were a good choice. Right. Uh, <laughs> I think we worked out okay. Right. But fair enough to them. Like, we were idiots, right? Right. And so, yeah, we just did showed they, up. Do you have any idea if they, like, there was a different faction that was like, we're going to talked to a bunch of TV writers or Hollywood writers or even like just authors as opposed to you oh. know a couple guys from the from the internet. I think they always did a little bit of that talking to other people, but it was really um, kind of just I think some Mark Laidlaw and some Gabe that was just like, yeah, these guys, right? Because then later we would hire Jay Pinkerton that same kind of way of like, hey, this guy makes us laugh. You know, let's let's reach out to him. Yeah. It's also interesting because at that point, I mean, okay, 2004, I mean, Half-Life was out. No, it was not out when we went, so we went to interview. No, no, Half-Life 1. Oh, Half-Life 1. I mean, I, I mean obviously that's been yes, out for yes, quite sorry, a while. Yes, yes, sorry, yes. Half-Life's out, Team Fortress is out, Counter-Strike's a thing. I'm trying to think of what else they had done. But at that point, um, well, I mean, Team Fortress sort of came from outside. But I guess my main thing, the point I'm trying to get at is I wouldn't think of Valve and comedy necessarily. No. Like I, so I'm kind of curious how they thought through that was what they were looking for. Yeah, that, I think it was just more Gabe thinking than anyone. Um, yeah. But so we spitballed some stuff with them and... Because um, comedy, comedy, comedy in games is kind of hard to do, I think, from a writing perspective. And presumably you have a lot more thoughts on this than I do. But like to me, like the funniest games I've played are like NBA Jam or Mario Kart yes, or yes. stuff like that where yeah. there's just like an inherent lunacy to what's going on, right? Yeah, embracing what the thing is. Yeah, right? as, as opposed to something that is, I'm going to write this this line or this situation or whatever and the player is going to encounter it once and like making that work, it hasn't been done well very often. Yeah, I, and I especially think at that time there weren't a lot of examples Less examples than there are now. But, you know, again, I guess for some linear stuff, and that's kind of like what we, we play-acted doing. And then I remember um, Eric leaving. who uh, had to leave, like, earlier than I did the last day. And he's like, let's just say yes. Okay. He's just like, 
<laughs> we, we'll, we'll figure this out in six months. If this isn't working out, we'll just sure. both quit. Right. Right. Did, did they offer you a job and, there or like while you were there? Well, he was, Gabe was hinting at it. Sure. And Eric's like, so if they offered, like, just say yes. Just right. you negotiate the salary. I'll take whatever you get us. Right. Right. I mean, what was your alternative? You got, because you, you told me that like things had kind of went down both for consulting and for the website. Like what well, was the rest of your life like at that point? Well, at that point for me, I was actually doing um, affiliate marketing. Okay. But I could already see that was ending. Sure. Like that these big sites were taking over like Ebates and stuff. Sure. We're going to just crush this. Yeah. But at the time it was still, you could write one funny thing, get it picked up and circulated enough. And if it had an affiliate link on it, make enough money that it was worth doing. Okay. And some of it was also a data problem. You could solve it with data. Okay. Um, so like I was doing okay there, but it wasn't right. fulfilling. Sure. Right. So uh, Go okay. to go to lunch with Gabe. Yeah, he, he makes an offer. I say yes to the first thing. Sorry, Eric. I didn't really <laughs> negotiate. It seemed pretty good. Would Eric have done better? <laughs> no, okay. no. Eric, right. Eric, 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 Eric would have taken. He would have been like, no, you should give us ten thousand less. <laughs> um, but was then it, I, was it a fair offer? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. 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 All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Gabe's point was like, don't come into too high of a mount because you're going to get. They'll expect too much. Yeah. Or? He's yeah. just like, this is, is this fair? Like, you can come in and, you know, you have to see what happens. Um, and then, yeah, I just remember we, we ate lunch, feeling good, had some time to kill before my plane ride, so I went back to play some Half-Life 2. Uh -huh. Gabe sat down behind me and watched, and I got stuck. Oh. <laughs> that was a worse moment, man. You got um, stuck in at a level or something, right? I got stuck. I got stuck in the boat. One of the boat parts. Oh, you you mean, have to cut through. and Not was, a bug. It no. Mean, it meant you couldn't figure out how to progress. No. Oh, really? And he just let me sweat it out for like a long time. Boat level, like early, like before you get the, the, the um, gravity gun? Yeah, like... so it's like you got to jump through one of the containers. And uh -huh. you, it's like if you miss turning and going back from the container, and finally he's just like, a lot of, this happens to a lot of people. And he tells me where to go. I'm like, oh, thank God. Sure. It's so horrible. Sure, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, th theoretically, that's exactly what he's looking for, right? Like, it's not, it's not your fault, it's their fault. So. Yeah. But, um, I've always been super afraid of working on any game like that, where there could be any moment yes. where it's just over and you can't explain. To me, I always think of like, okay, even if there's a 1% chance yep. for at these 20, you know, 20 different sections where there may be a 1% chance that someone doesn't progress, that means if you know probability, that means like basically 50-50 shot, someone's actually going to be able to make it through the game. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and that just seems... Depressing. Hard, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Anyway, go ahead. But so, so I gave offers a job. I started December first, two thousand four. Okay. Right, and you started on. Um, well, so everyone was off on vacation. Okay. Because they had just shipped Half Life Two. Right. Sure. Yep. Yep. Um, and so we were doing some of the linear storytelling stuff and kind of talking through with some of the people that were still there. And I had made this rule of like I was going to learn everyone's name. I'm really bad with names. How, how I'm going to learn everyone's names. How big was Valve at that point? Seventy-five people. Mm-hmm. Okay. But then all of a sudden, everyone came back from vacation. I'm like, oh man, it's a lot more people now. Right. But um, during vacation, I mean, Eric's told this story where Eric was sick. He calls me like on Christmas Eve that he's dying. He goes to the hospital. Um, they're like, hey, you gotta, we're gonna do a bunch of stuff to you. You're gonna be out of commission for like six months. Wow. So when I get back to the office, Eric's like, hey, can you go with me to Tulkey if I'm gonna quit? He's like, you can stay here. You know, we had done nothing at that point for three right. weeks except collect a paycheck. Right, sure. And Gabe was just like, yeah, no, you know, Derek, um, you still work here. This is your job. Get better. Sure. And I remember walking out of that meeting with Eric being like, oh, we're going to work here forever now. Sure. Because, yeah, like, yeah. this is the person I care about. And Gabe just totally 
to care about. Yeah. And then like the next week, um, they're all planning the Hawaii trip for the company. And Gabe asks me like, if I've ever been to Hawaii before. And I'm like, well, no, you know, and it's like, that's for Half-Life 2. I didn't work on Half-Life 2. That doesn't make right. sense for me to go. And he's like, shut up, you're going. Right. And then like they paid for my wife who was still in Cleveland at the time to come over from Cleveland. And it was just like, this is, place is just amazing how it yeah. treats us, right? And then um, really kind of just struggled around with what I was doing there for a little bit. How did you feel walking into that? Like how were you, I mean, how basically, like how intimidated were you? That's oh, basically what I'm trying to get at. Insanely intimidated. Okay. You know, we did, the, we did like the classic thing of, so there was like some linear story thing they were working on. And we get all wound up and like the next day just get up at like four in the morning in a hotel room and rewrite everything. <laughs> okay. Right. And just like pitch them this giant thing that's just like, we have no idea how much content this is to make or anything. Right. We're just right. idiots. And then... Um, and when you say linear storytelling, you mean that for, I don't know, what it, whatever it is, the next thing they're going to do with Half-Life, this is their version of the story. Yes. You're, you're like rewriting it for them. Yeah. It's not going to be in a game. It's going to be in the, you know, the beginning of the source filmmakers getting started then and all okay. of this. Um, and so that never really got happening. You talk about comedy being hard. So the Team Fortress team won. So I guess I don't remember the timeline. If it was, we've shipped, if I worked on Half-Life Episode 1 first or Team Fortress pitching. But so at some point we started, they wanted to pitch Team Fortress 2. And so the person doing that was Charlie Brown. Mm -hmm. And he's just like, hey, can you help with like writing the pitch deck and stuff? Okay. It's a new project. New, new project. Yeah, okay. And I mean, that's, I mean, so that, that would be, if I was talking about another game, I, you know, like for me, a funny game, like Team Fortress 2 actually would be like a very good fit for that. So anyway, well, go ahead. Well, yeah, so except, work. so at the time it was not the, the characters it was now. Sure. I mean, it's it the beginning. It was more so. serious. Yeah. And so uh, I spent three months trying to pitch ideas for justification for the story and like trying to actually make it a real story. There Okay. Like, and I was going to say, what, were, what story? They were funny. Okay. And I just remember one of the artists telling me, like, yeah, you shouldn't make it funny. Okay. I'm like, oh, no. So when you, when, when you first started, you when he first asked you to help him with the pitch deck, was there comedy at all? Or it was just... No, it was just, just like ways board. to think about it. And um, Gabe can be, like, Gabe very rightly cut down that first pitch. Okay. Very harshly um, for not being very good at thinking it through. Mm -hmm. And I just remember uh, when, when, when it's failing, offering up that the best thing I could offer is that if TF2 got made now, it could be the only game ever to win best of E3 multiplayer in two separate millennia. <laughs> and he just put his head on the desk. <laughs> um, so that was not a good reason to make a game, I guess. Right. Um, but so that went sideways there. Um, and then at some point, the team got the art style. Moby had come in, I think, and gotten a different vibe to the art style. And it kind of drove with that kind of like comedy, not comedy thing. Mm -hmm. And at the point, at that point, already had been, I was working on episode one, where I started doing with the responsible stuff, which is some light scripting, hooking up with audio, and kind of got that down. But literally, it was like a job I could have done in an afternoon that I stretched into a six-month job, and I play tested a lot. Okay. Um, How when you say you stretched it into a six-month? job what does that mean exactly it just took six months from when we started on it to shipping and it was me learning and just playing in that space but really the amount of work i did was very little okay um i should have been fired <laughs> okay but in fact I, I still at that point thought i was gonna get fired any day i mean do you it's interesting did you 
even think of it in that way? I mean, do you feel like you were learning, but you just like you were, were you doing the right thing, or were you I, making mistakes that you shouldn't have been making? I, and in hindsight, I was learning. I also was opening up Hammer and playing around in there and understanding some of that stuff that later in my head I would be able to connect together. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was there was something going on there, but it was like Valve very much gave us space to just flounder around. Because then at one point, you know, um, episode one, Eric wasn't back yet. Um, but then, you know, um, oh, actually, that's where I got a nickname out of episode one as well. So they had done this weird awards ceremony for it, mm-hmm. where when we got done shipping, they gave people who worked on it like these little plaques. Okay. And they had them come up and say something. But what do you say when it's just like your coworkers and no one, like the first three people didn't know what to say? Sure. So I, a fourth person went up and I just said, I'd like to thank myself for being so awesome. And uh, that was it. And then everyone else who didn't know what to say thanked me for being awesome. <laughs> okay. And so, uh, yeah, I uh, took that where uh, uh, Kathy, the uh, HR person, wrote my bio for me on the website as an example of a bad bio not to write. Mm-hmm. And as a self-proclaimed Mr. Awesome because of that. Okay. So it's stuck. Yeah, I like nicknames. I'm happy to have a nickname. Right. But, uh, but so, yeah, I, again, just really struggled there. But then the Team Fortress stuff started... And that started clicking, and at the same time, time time frames are really murky here. Is I played Left 4 Dead. Okay. And to me, all of a sudden, like I just remember going back the first time to Gabe and being like, "Oh my God, this is this is you know like the dream game to me." And she's like, "Well, just go work on it." Okay. I'm like, okay, but it's Turtle Rocks started it. Um, you know, it's Michael Booth down there making it. And he's like, well, just go work on it. And at the time, it was um, versus a very twitchy, mm-hmm. very much came from Counter-Strike 4v4 kind of game. But I always could think in my head of like what it, like the more mainstream way that I thought about like the zombie genre and stuff, right? Right. Uh, and so started working on that. And I remember uh, Eric was going to, Eric was joining me in the beginning of working on that. And... Eric's first letter to, I blame Eric for this one. Uh, the first letter to Michael Booth, that was our introduction to, hey, we're gonna come working on it, was, hey, we're not very good at making games, but we're pretty efficient. So um, we're gonna suggest a 10% layoff of your staff. I don't know why you would say that as your opening email <laughs> to someone you've never met. Oh, or met once. Uh, but yeah, there you go. Okay. Uh, um, Booth had a fairly decent sense of humor about that. Um, right. But yeah, we just came down and Eric's like, yeah, this is, setup's not for me, it's not the, quite the thing. And so he left working on it, and I just started working on it then. Um, what did you like about Left 4 Dead? Like, why, why were you psyched into it at that point? I, zombie movies and that genre was always really impactful for me, and the idea of being social and working together. Okay. And I could see this thing that I wanted it to be. So my wife and I would play games together sometimes, and we'd play Doom. And very simple to get into and jump out of, and very forgiving, and you help each other. And I could see that in Love for Dead, that there was something there that we could take it to there. Sure. Okay. I mean, I, I really, I'm actually, tonight I'm going to be having uh, dinner with some friend, like some friends who like I typically always play these type of games with, and we play Left 4 Dead, both, you know, both versions, and um, I've, I felt, I, anytime a game like that came out, I was like, there's a dearth of games for just this thing, which seems so basic of like, you just have a few friends, yes, and you want to do something fun and challenging together. You know, like killing each other gets old. Yes. Right? And, you know, it just seems like 
there's always there's always so much potential there. Like if people think if people well, killing each other, there's always the one friend that's just better than everybody else. Yeah, equate. exactly. And you're just like, okay, you're gonna win again. Um, so yeah, so no, like that 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 thing that it did it was just really powerful to me, and so something I really wanted to do, and so started working on it of just rounding up things at Valve and kind of really almost like a producery role. And then Gabe's is like, well, why don't you just you know take more of a a, a role in that? Okay. And so so you weren't doing as much writing. Like, uh, like what, well, so, so I was doing all the writing for it, but right. also more than that of like, hey, we're going to have a team up here in Seattle that's going to start working on it as well. At that point, it not they hadn't purchased the company yet. Right. But it was clear, like, so originally they, like, I saw the sales forecast and they were really low and like what they thought the game would do and how they talked about the game was very different. But after a while of working on it and it's really starting to be a little bit more forgiving and having it be a little bit more about the social side of it and less the hardcore nature of it, you know, they kind of look and go, oh, this could actually be something, you know, this could, this could sell a lot of copies. How did you, I don't know what your role is necessarily, but how did the game make that shift? Like, what do you remember were the key elements for that? Playtesting. Right. Playtesting. Playtesting, pushing and trying things. Right. Right. And so, you know, to that end, uh, Booth was really open and I think he really respected Val's process so that if that process said, hey, these are the things are true, he's going to at least try them. And so it was kind of through that process that we started, you know, working together of changing what the game was and having it be where, you know, when you wiped, you didn't start from the very beginning of the game anymore. You started from the, um, the last, last safe room. Or yeah. Yeah. And so like a lot of those kind of changes started going in. Um, and just it started opening up of like who wanted to play and and what was going right. on. Is that so I'm trying to even remember like if remember it seems they had some mode where people could play competitively. Yeah, so it had but, versus mode. But so one of the things we found really early on internally was versus mode was really hard to tune because one really good player could just right. tip the balance and it was impossible to balance that game and you couldn't understand how you should balance. How strong should the hunter be? How should we think about this or whatever, right? It was just really hard to do because you've got these humans on the other side of it. So we actually removed verses for a while. Right. And just concentrated just, on the co-op side just of Just kind it. of to force people to play just purely co-op. Yeah. And then really just kind of hone that down. And then there was a little break where Orange Box shipped ahead of time. Uh-huh. And that dominated my time. Um, sure. Right. For, for that, because I was working on both um, episode two, doing the responsible stuff and some Alex stuff, but I always feel bad. I, I didn't give that as much time as I should have because I work. I mean, I'm working on three, three different three games, games at once, <laughs> yeah. uh, and going down to Southern California like once every other month yeah. for a while, uh-huh. and so it was just it was stressful. Right. Um, but yeah, doing the and then Team Fortress and the Team Fortress stuff, really seeing how the vocal system could work. In the multiplayer space, the first time we really started pushing on that and realizing that that's what we should be doing in Love for Dead and how we kind of set that up and run with it. Right. And then the orange box became, I mean, a little bit of a hot mess at Valve of uh, me and an animator realized there was no QA and nobody understood what CERT meant. Well, okay. EA was going to take the Sony version through CERT. We were on the hook for the Microsoft version. So we kind of got the manuals out and ran QA. Right. Um, and running QA meant grabbing all the Xboxes we could out of everybody's office, putting them in the hallway, and um, setting up 24-hour shifts of testing. Right. And to be clear, like, Val is not crunchy like this anymore. Like, these are 
there's a romanticism to this and there's not. It, right. 24-hour shift of like just all like regular Valve employees to like try to get this friends thing. Friends and family could come yeah, in as well sure. at that point, right? But yeah, it was just like continuous testing um, and going and just making sure we were like every single moment we can looking for crashes or looking for different yeah. issues. And, you know, sometimes it's fun because you're playing Team Fortress against sure, each other. Right. Yeah. And sometimes you are, remember, if you remember that, had all of Half-Life in it like and you're just playing that single player for you know sure. eight hours yeah. or something yeah. and yeah it was I mean, rough yep i mean you were shipping three games right so yeah um that's complicated and i'm not the most detail-oriented person at times and so definitely um uh, morello the animator really stepped up and kind of did that side of it and i did more the organizing side and kind of the yeah this is i don't know if i'm be able to ask the right question here but like why were you doing production like it seems because at that time that we that's there was no one like if yeah, no one else if no one it. if I would have, if we would have stood up to do it no one would have done it or what would have a lot of valve things are uh, until someone stands up to do it no one's doing it but there's just this belief that eventually someone's going to stand up and do it and are there ever just complete disasters because no one does stand up to do it now it seems magically that somebody always stands up to do it, right? Okay. But like right. this was like just really clearly like once him and I said it together, we're like, oh shit, yeah, this is really clearly mm -hmm. we should just do this and like let's get the matrix of testing down that we need to be doing and going through and like it was just it's more like valve setup. So whatever is the most pressing issue, somebody will someone stand will be up. able to adapt to yeah. that, right? Because you're not stuck in a specific position. Yeah, and then definitely they learn from that eventually. Um, you know, by portal time, or even Left 4 Dead 2 time, that, hey, we should have an outside agency as well doing this, and it just shouldn't be all, like, it's a bad use of employees' time, it's burning people out, and, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. Huh. Um, but, yeah, it was it was really intense for a while there, got that out the door, and then when, like, I think the week after we shipped, I went back down to Southern California and was back on Left 4 Dead. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I'd like to hear a little more about, about Left 4 Dead because, um, so you, you took, you turned off the versus mode for a while and like, was there like, what, what was the result of that? Like, what did they, what did they learn? Um, well, first of all, if you turn off the versus mode, you don't mind that you reset at the safe room. Right. Okay. Sure. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, these characters can be more punishing where before it had to be like you're gradually picking away at players they were losing health over time yep, right and it wasn't to the finale that you could kill them or not but if it's all of a sudden this way you could really make it where the best outcome is one person still standing running into the safe, the room. safe room yeah right right, right yep. and so then you could start playtesting for that and then you just look at that and go hey so the heuristic was you're a lot of crash you're a lot of, you're a lot of wipe three times Mm -hmm. um, but if you made it after that, that was an okay difficulty level, yeah. right? And so we just kept testing that way, right? And I mean, also with that, uh, I remember um, Philco was one of our level designers introduced the idea of crescendo events, those kind of break points. Yeah. Because it'd be exhausting. You'd just be playing all the time. And it's like, well, let's give you pacing back to the player. Right. And we had talked a lot of things about that. And Phil came up with, it, sound, it seems obvious now, right? But it, until you put it in, it's not. They put it in. It's like, oh yeah, this is totally working. Like, and so okay, we we have these different breaks during the maps, right? Um, you know, and there's just a lot of that kind of tuning and kind of really just you know you play test it, you watch, and then you react and you build from there. Yeah, taking out so it's it's hard. I think it's really hard for game projects to make a big change when it deviates from what the original conception of the game was. Right? Yes. Like, I mean, you know, I, you you know, you weren't at Turtle Rock all the time, so I'm not. You know, you may not have been 
you know, present for some of this stuff, but like, I kind of wonder if there was like a faction that was like really felt this was the wrong move for yes. the game. Oh yeah. Right. Oh yeah, 100%. Okay. Oh yeah. That yeah. was part of, part of trying to smooth that out that I think I probably did not do that great of a job at. But I'm friends with Phil and uh, Chris still. Uh, it was rough. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there's definitely Val's So this coming is something in, specifically you push for. Val's coming in and ruining the game. Okay. 100%. Right. That would be me. I ruined the game. Okay. Right. We ruined the characters. We because we wanted characters we wanted to live with for a while. Yeah. And the original ones were really kind of grungy and dark and yeah. not a lot of fun. Um, and we wanted ones that were a little bit more happy and fun to be around. And yeah. you can't be dreary all the time, right? Yeah. And also, I mean, not not to their detriment, but like, not to, not to their fault, but like, I remember talking about like the biker, um, um, Francis. Like, he can't say every line being like, well, when I ride my bike, I like to reload, right? right yeah. Like, you have the character, you have the model, you have the voice. He can just talk like a person, right? Yeah. And so it was like taking that and running with it and making those characters. And I remember um, Gabe even got onto me one time of like, hey, um, so Gabe was really hands-on on this. He was super great. I learned so much because like every day um, we were like going to lunch or dinner together or something and talking about this. And he's just, he's super smart. Um, but the one time he's beating me up for like, hey, there's no story. Right. He's like, you know, in um, Night of the Living Dead, it's about racism. Um, Dawn of the Dead is about consumerism. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. it's like, what's your thing? And I'm like, no, it's not that. It's just like, what would happen if you or me were thrown into this? We, it's not our virus. We don't know why it started. We're not going to fix it. We're just going to be thrown into this mess and have no idea what's going on. Right. And like, he, he argued with me a lot on that of like, if that was right or not. And then, you know, like the next week he would go do an interview somewhere and he'd be talking about it very eloquently using better words than me to describe what I was describing and why it's written that way and why we have that. I mean, I'm always a fan of that. I'm a fan of throwing not the police, not the military into it, but just regular people into this situation and having them figure it out. Um, and so, yeah, it was just like, we, we had done that with the characters. The characters are different now. Um, you know, and that was some of our artists up in Seattle, we're making those changes as well as how we thought about like how they talked and what they talked about. And so like all of those changes were happening at the same time. Right. So there definitely was conflict, right? I walked, I would, I would go down sometimes just to try to ease that over. And sometimes I failed and sometimes I probably didn't help it. Right. Sure. The, eventually some sort of versus mode got put back in, right? Correct. And it, it was like, you, they, they, was it one person? No. So, so, so how it got put back in was, uh, the engineers, some of the really senior engineers who shipped Half-Life were like, we should not put this back in. A, it's got a bunch of perf issues that we're not going to fit. It's super punishing. And so then I arranged a play test where they all played it against each other, but in the same room. Okay. So they could turn around and shit talk each other. Right. Which is the best, absolute best way to play that game. Right. And it was after that, they're like, this is such a good experience. Yeah, we should put this in. Right. Right. And so it was just like, okay. Well, and then we ended up putting it in after, and it was 4v4. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just you took the role of the creatures um, right? and you put it in. But that meant then that every creature that we put into that game had to be fun to play in versus mode. And so right. that, I learned, kind of caps some of the choices we could make. Right. Like you can't make the character that stands really still and not move because the player doesn't want to do that. Right. But there was a, char- there was a character like the that. The witch. It, so you can play that. Oh, you don't play the witch. Okay. Yeah. All right. Right. Um, huh. So what was, but there were some fundamental differences from the previous versus mode, I assume, right? Well, first that you could wipe somebody that, that map, 
Right. True. It didn't have to wait. It didn't have to be a slow pack down. You could wipe them very quickly. Yeah. Um, and that was probably the biggest change there. And then we added some scoring around that. Right. Okay. Did you ever? Did you guys find out eventually, like what people, what which version got played, like yeah. what percentage? Overwhelmingly co-op. Like, like 90 10 or 73 um, like like, what, like just how 85 how 15 okay well so when i say co-op i'm saying both the campaign mode and then what would eventually be kind of the holdout mode right okay those two were played a ton do you think there were compromise made were there compromises that still had to be made to get verses in there i don't know I don't, at the time i don't know if we ever would have changed any of the creatures that greatly but it definitely was in the back of our heads the whole time Right. So like the game I'm working on now, the Anacrusis, we're purposely doing only co-op first so that we don't have to worry about that. Right. But we're doing inputs that we could take them over, but we're just not worried about that now. Because like, let's make sure we're making the best enemies that are the funnest to fight as players. And like, there's an enemy that we have that we couldn't do in Left 4 Dead, where it's an enemy that drops these little things that come after you and eventually you want to hunt that enemy down, but it's hiding from you. Yeah. And like a player wouldn't do that, right? Sure. And, but we can do that in this because we, we control everything. Yeah. yeah. These are weird questions because like with the, the game I just did, Old World, it started as a multiplayer game. And then eventually we were like, okay, you know, it's now that we're, we're good with the mechanics, we're making a single player. And beyond that, this is a single player first game. So we don't want to make any compromises for the multiplayer. But like, it's almost impossible. You'll, it's just... Yes. You know, it's 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 not really a true statement, and you just try to minimize it. But it's it's a really weird thing to, to go through. Like so, for you know, with with Left for Dead, like the thing that stands out for me about the design of that game that was really really well done was how each of the the creatures weren't randomly designed. They were designed to punish a specific type of poor social play. Correct. Right. And like like that's just one of those moments where you feel like the the design is so attuned to the. Um, not some not some random idea of like how to make a game, but like actually how the game is played in real life in like a real yes. setting. Um, and I'd love to hear more about like how that well, so came, came to be. Well, so that was really Michael Booth's theory on how to start making them to begin with was okay. like they should solve problems. Okay. And that was just it was he he's super smart, super great game designer. Um, he's over at uh, Bad Robot now. Okay. And just so it was working with him through that. And then it was just like, well, hang on here. Like, you know, this needs to do this. But if you're super hardcore, um, you're still, you're like the, like giving forgivances and letting skill express itself, but yet not punishing new players. So it was that mixed skill set thing of having that be broad enough inside of there. And that was pushing out a lot of those things of like that you could get out of some stuff on your own. But equally, I remember like, um, someone coming up to me going, oh, we're going to cut the hunter, though, or change it, right? Like, you have to be able to get out from underneath it. It's really mm-hmm. it's really unfun when your players leave you behind. Right. I'm like, yeah, no, we're going to ship that way. Like, right. You need it to do that. That's the point of it, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah and that's, that's kind of maybe why I keep asking these questions about multiplayer, because, like, um, it would seem to me that if the purpose of, you know, if the purpose of the hunter, for example, is to punish players who don't, you know, who wander L- off. Lone gunning, they're, yeah. They're not, they're, they're, yeah, exactly. They're lone wolves. It's, it seems like it's, it's harder to make sure that these, these creatures are actually fulfilling their purpose if you have a human in control as opposed to you have an AI. Correct. Because part of, their, part of their, the way they do their job in the game design is AI, 
right? Yes. So that seems really difficult. Well, it's also the way the so the way the AI works is it kind of stacks how they, they um, spawn. So you know the first one's going to spawn on its own, then you make it two together. But it's not like stacking them all at once. Where as a player, you learn really quickly. It's really frustrating when people don't do this. So wait up, stack, attack all together. Right. You're way more powerful that way. There's yep. more, way more mayhem. They're having to deal with all these different things. But that's also just super punishing, and it kind of gets fatiguing. But it's fun when you're doing versus because you know it's another human. Yeah. But if it was just the AI doing that, that would sure. be fatiguing. So you have to kind of think of it in a different way. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Okay. Um, all right. Well. But yeah, a lot of so a lot of people have would give in the playtests after the playtest would be like, well, yeah, but you should. I wanted to lone gun it more. Like, yeah. yeah <laughs> it's, it's not going to do it. Yeah, those are always really tricky comments to handle you know, design-wise, because, like, sometimes, you know, you, you want a conception of, like, this is this is what this, you know, this is how we want the game to play. We feel like it fills this purpose. Yes. It's for this type of player. And sometimes you'll just get comments that are just completely running the opposite of that. And, like, I really yep. want to do it this way. And it's like, well, you know, you have to, yep. you have to know when it's like, I'm intentionally leaving that behind. This game is not for you, I guess. Yeah. Right? You yeah. Know? And then, then, you know, well, so then when we got to Love for Dead 2, those creatures equally are made for the same problem solving, right? So the spitter is if you're, yeah. what we call Shiva stacking, where you're stacked in the corner, you're not moving apart, you yeah. get punished. Um, the charger can hit somebody and take them away, and the jockey can grab someone and take them away, because it both has the problem with the hunter was, the hunter would target the person who's off and running ahead, but if they got grabbed, that means you were gonna run up to them and you were gonna quickly save them. Right. So it wasn't that effective. So like in Anacrusis, we all, we'll go for the person behind sometimes because okay. that'll slow the whole team down and make them come back. Um, but then for the jockey and the um, um, charger, it was to move them out of the way so that they had you had to go then get them, right? Right, right, right. Okay. Um, yeah. But, the uh, <laughs> I, I guess I'm just, as you were saying that, I was thinking like well, the, the thing I just described of like you have to sometimes be willing to say like, okay, we're not making a game for you or what you're asking for. The hard part about that is that's not very different from just being a bad game designer. Yes, yes. <laughs> Where you're like, I don't want to listen to feedback. I don't want to hear yes. what you have to say about my game. Like, like how do you know, how does someone know the difference between the two, you know? Yeah, so that was, so I did, I did so like, I, so essentially me and Michael Booth were the leads on Left 4 Dead 1 and then me and um, Tom Leonard were the leads on Left 4 Dead 2. And that was one of the things uh, Tom Leonard said to me at one point. He goes, sometimes you just have to trust your game designer. <laughs> right. And it's just like, they're going to be mad and, and disagree. But yeah. the Hunter was all worth it for one moment. Okay. E3. Mm -hmm. We're shown at E3 the first day. And like the, the room gets really filled. People are just coming in and playing. Other developers are coming in and playing. It's a good time. Peter Molnu comes in with a group of people. I think he was working on Fable at the time. Okay. Sits down at the computer to play. Gets instantly pounced by a hunter. His co-workers ignore him and just keep going. <laughs> he literally, within five seconds of playing, he is getting mauled by a hunter, killed, looks around, just gets up and walks out. <laughs> it's like... There may have been something going on with that team that. Uh... Yeah. It's just, well, it's a loud room. I'll give them credit for that. But it's just funny because I'm like, oh my God, Molnay's playing the game. That's so cool. Right. I'm like, oh yeah, he probably is not going to say nice things about it now. Oh, that's funny. Um, okay. So, so that was then we did. So we did Orange Box one year. The very next year, we did Left 4 Dead 1. Yep. And Left 4 Dead 1 was also crunchy. Right. It came in very hot, really crashy, really buggy. Yeah. Um, we again set up computers and this time we just we just made it explicit 
Um, here's the beer in the fridge. Bring your friends, hang out, and play it like you would at home. We're just looking for crashes. And we just had the whole office filled that way. And at one point, I remember there was uh, one of the animators sent out a company-wide email. Hey, I'm coming in. I'm going to stop for a beer run. Does anyone need anything? And I'm like, oh, my God. That's really bad. I look <laughs> so bad that we're just like, we're just drunk and mayhem here. Right, yeah, yeah. So then we had um, someone brought in some kegs for the fridge, and that solved that problem. <laughs> solved that problem. <laughs> and again, not like, you know, it's one of those things like you can romanticize it now. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, you know, I think that probably helped me in how people thought of like that I was willing to work hard. Yeah. But it's not good. It's not healthy. It's not a sustainable way. How I mean, much, I've woken up on Gabe's yeah. couch. How much do you think you were working per week at like the most extreme? Oh, part that- blur. You can't even tell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would be it'd be a group of us late at night trying to just solve one bug and reproduce it, and yeah, and yeah, you know. But it was always that thing of like no one, no one like Gabe never was like you guys got to work twelve hours. Yeah. Instead, it's the group of us pushing each other and being like, hey, there's this bug, we got to fix this because we're proud about what we're making and we want to make sure it doesn't yeah. have this. But yeah, in both Orange Box and Left 4 Dead One and two to a little bit lesser extent had the thing of like, hey, going to cert to Microsoft was this bloodbath of like right. 24 hours straight up trying to get it through to cert. Right. Um, yeah. Is there, I mean, did they eventually develop better processes? Like, like what's the, like, was there a way out of that? The big, the big separation was we stopped shipping in stores. Sure, right. Because literally it. in Left 4 Dead 2 in June, we're saying, yes, we're going to ship November 18th because that's when... GameStop's going to stock it in the store and yeah. we can pay, you know, Best Buy some ungodly sum just to put it in their stores. And Christmas deadlines are the worst because, like, there's no, you know, oh, yeah. there's no flexibility, so. Yeah, and there were years, like, multiple years in a row then that, like, my birthday, like, my wife would bring my birthday cake into work because yeah. I was working. Yeah. Yeah. Um, geez. Uh yeah, I've never been part of a, of a studio that had mandated crunch, so I'm always like, I feel like at a total loss to like comment on that because that feels like a very specific thing that that seems like really bad because at that point the company has just made this decision that that you know basically like whatever they want as a company is more important than the employees. But um, um, but so it was never like that. That's that's the weird thing. Is it really it was self-driven. In no, a lot no, of ways. Sorry, and, let me. Yeah, let me, and there were people. There were people who did not do that. To be yeah. clear. No, no, let me, sorry, let me but, finish, finish what yeah, I was trying to oh, say, sorry, which was sorry. that, basically what I'm saying is like, I've only worked at places with what you're describing at Valve, where okay. it's like, yeah, we worked insane hours, but it was not mandated. So I've always, I've always felt like it's kind of very two separate problems. Like if there's, there, the, the companies that, I mean, I, again, I don't have any experience with, but I hear they just are like, okay, we're switching to crunch mode. We expect you to be here on Saturday. Like to me, that always just seems like, that seems insane. Like yeah. I can't, I, 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 I I kind of like, I don't, I want to say I don't believe it. Obviously, it must be true because I hear people talk about it, but like, it seems like telling people like something like that with a straight face just seems crazy. But then there's the other side, which is, like, I guess, what we've both been through, which is just like you have these very difficult deadlines, you have a lot of passion for a project, and you maybe do things to your own life that are not great. Correct. Um, and like, you know, I think for myself, like I gave myself a few years where I thought like that was fine. Like whereas I am in my life, that's totally yep. fine. But um, you know, it's it's 
I don't. I, I don't know what I think about it honestly. Like it's. it's well, so, well, so how, how how do you so like for our company we do some things to try to prevent that. One, we have like a, a profit sharing plan that isn't based on like merit in that way because like that's one sure. thing when you do stack ranking, people will drive themselves because like oh man I should have worked harder sure. my bonus would have been bigger, or you know like stock disbursements that same way or something and it's just like yeah it's great that you get those things but like that's a bad incentive and. People are stupid to themselves in a way that's just unhealthy, right? So, like, do you, are there things that you do try to do at your company where, like, because I mean, I just try to tell people, like, hey, yeah, don't work yeah. this weekend, right? Like, for we released our trailer at E3, and it's missing some things that I wish were in there that would have had a big impact in it, that we had to change some things. But, like, one of the engineers asked, like, hey, somebody asked me to work this weekend on this, should I? And I'm like, well, you got this thing going on with your daughter, man. Go do the thing with your daughter. Yeah. Right. I, I try to be very careful about tr trying to be very careful to emphasize things that are not important. Like when I ask for something and like uh, you're whatever, I'm just like, I bring something up and I'm like, I like, look, this is, this is not important. Right. Like yeah. whenever this gets done, it is fine. Right. Because it's, I just, yeah, I have to remember that like as you know, leader in the company, when you say something, people like want to do that thing. Right. And yes. Like you really have to make sure they know that like, you know, there are things that are very important, but like really a lot of the stuff you do in development, it's fine. Like it'll take yep. however long it takes. Um, yeah, that was, that's definitely the, yeah, you're the boss. And I hate the word boss, so it's a bad word. But like you're the person that people will listen to. Yeah. And honestly, not everyone should listen to me all the time. Like, <laughs> and we try, so I try to like, I'll purposely try to talk less in meetings. I don't run meetings often just so that people have that work. I mean, we hire smart people and like they should be doing that and then I'm not imposing things on them, but equally like we try to talk through it. It's hard, it's hard because everyone is passionate and wants to do something, right? Yeah. Like I think my whole thing lately has been thinking the best thing you could give somebody at their job is to be engaged. Because mm -hmm. they're excited about what they're doing and what they're putting their time in. All the other stuff is extra. And I mean, like hours and all of that for sure, right? But like if they're engaged and then you're making sure that they're working a healthy life, that's the best thing you can do more than like, do you have this benefit or that benefit or whatever? Like, do you have catered lunches? I'd rather be engaged. Yeah. I'd rather have the thing that I'm working on be meaningful to me. And so then that's been like, I need to keep people engaged. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Um, all right. Well, let's, should we jump to maybe portal? Let's we kind of talk through. Well, so we the original portal was um, uh, for Orange Box. Yes. And so the original portal, um, you know, I told you like Team Fortress was, wasn't supposed to be funny. Right. And Eric reads me, he had written the very first intro part that eventually shipped pretty much with the game as was. And we were just cracking up. And I'm like, oh my God, can this ship? And then the beautiful thing was, it was so under the radar as like still the student project just kind of thrown in for fun sure, right, yeah, yeah. that it just didn't get scrutiny in mm -hmm. the same way. And then I think also just the writing was so brilliant by Eric in that. And so I had done some writing in Portal 1, but it all got cut. Not by writing, oh, really? but like the whole okay. section. There's this all whole right. other thing you were going to do for a while that just it wasn't as polished and just got cut. And I think I have a couple of lines in, but really that's Eric. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's just brilliant. Right, okay. I mean, yeah. Uh, as it used to be in my GDC bio, uh, Eric is the funnier one. Uh, and I think that's <laughs> okay. good proof of that. All right, okay. Um, all right. So. And then Portal 2. Yeah. So Portal 2, I did not want to work on. 
um, because I had done Orange Box. I done Episode One, Orange Box, Left 4 Dead One, Left 4 Dead Two, and I just really just wanted a little break. And you know, at that point, I'm working on Left 4 Dead Two and just a DLC and updating it and kind of you know putting some stuff in. And then um, the co-op wasn't coming together as Jay and Eric were working on the main story so much that the co-op was kind of just languishing. So they were like, hey, can you come in and work on the co-op? And the day they asked me that was uh, the day my cat got diagnosed with cancer. Oh. And I love my little kitty very much. That was, that was um, Mazzy. And so then uh, it was the best thing is I would just come into work and Jay and Eric would just crack me up for a couple hours every right. day and then I would start working. Yeah. And it was like the best therapy. Yeah. Because they're like two of the funniest people I know, and it would seriously just be two hours of jokes, and then we're like, "Oh, now we'll get to work." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all right, and uh, so you, so you primarily worked on the co-op levels for that. So I own the co-op side of it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, my, my contributions to the other side of it are so minuscule compared to what those guys did. Sure. I don't want to confuse it. Like, yeah, Jay in particular just does this great thing of. Um, like if you have a meeting about something, I swear to God, on the way back to the meeting, he's already writing it. And right. Me and Eric are both lazy. So you, when you have this workhorse that can just start laying the track out, and it's, don't get me wrong, it's funny, it's good. But this is like, all of a sudden you have something to push against and, and throw around and, you know, and it was, just, it was just so great having him around to do that stuff. And then for the co-op side of it, um, we just said, I won't come in and their jokes, they don't come in on my jokes. Like, we would listen to each other's stuff and, sure. like, give notes kind of thing, but we were always supportive of each other. Right. Of, like, hey, it's going to be a little, co-op's going to be a little different, and um, right. the single player's going to be a little different, right? Okay. And that's fine. Yep. Um, but, like, some of that, some of the stuff that got in is, like, uh, yeah, maybe my biggest contribution to the single player side is the, the jokes about being adopted. Mm -hmm. um, come from, I got a cereal box that had fun facts about the presidents. Okay. And one of the fun facts was, was adopted. I forget which president was adopted. <laughs> okay. And I'm that's like, a that's fact. a fun fact? <laughs> and whatever reason, I think that stuck with me and Eric. Right. And yeah, he yeah, yeah. was able to work that back in. And then the co-op stuff was just fun to do. Um, th that team was great to work with. And we tried a lot of, do a lot of things of like, what if she says different things to different people? Which I don't think really most people notice that she actually does do that. She'll play favorites and kind of get you to try to be against each other. And there's other things we try to do of like, if you're really quiet, it's gonna be like, and the other person was talking a lot, it's gonna be like, hey, that other person talks a lot. Like a loud voice chat? Yeah. Oh, wow. But it ends up, players thought they were being noisy when they were doing emotes and everything else. Right, And sure. so that ended up not being a good way, and so we cut a lot of that. Stuff. But that was still fun. That was like, um, Atlas and Peabody are still yep. like these characters that just so resonate with me because I lived with them for so long. Right. Like yeah. that's a multiplayer game where you always need two players that I could solve single player. Um, what does that mean exactly? You, you mean by jumping back and forth? By holding two controllers at once. Oh, okay. Again, I grew up. This is I I I had I had I trained for this. There isn't anything that's but, too twitchy to make that where it's still possible. It's, there's a couple places that are really hard, but you can do it. Okay. Um, but like I just needed to do that to test the voice lines, right? Did that become a design constraint if you were doing that regularly? Uh, well, the design constraint was that no, that it had to be take two people to do it. One person couldn't do it. Sure, it takes. But, but you could do it. But you could do it asynchronously for most of it. Right. Right. There's only two places you needed to do it at the exact same time. That's I guess what I mean. Like I yeah. could imagine you could design it so it was more synchronous. Like we're yeah. trying to, you know, you have to do like three, two, one, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like the, the end, you need to do that in some other places. But yeah. But you don't think you were like intentionally avoiding that if you were testing it? Like no, this? no, okay. no. The most of the, a lot of those puzzles had kind of been 
taken from other parts and been designed. And it was just really trying to work them through and kind of have some kind of co coherent story. And, you know, my whole thing was when I started it and I looked at it, and I'm like, well, as long as the punchline can be genocide, I'm down with it. And so that's essentially it is at the end, you find the last humans and you know right. they're going to be the test subjects and they're all going to be killed. And right. That's, yeah. a, that's a great joke. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I played through, I played through the co-op levels before I played Portal 2. Okay. Uh, I really enjoyed them. I thought they're really well done. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I mean, to be like, tell me about your, con did you conceive of the characters? Like, did you take it from game to end? Like, what was your, what was your concept no, going in? And which one so um, the artists, um, uh, Richard Lord, and Tristan um, had come up with the the models, mm -hmm. and then it was like, how do you infuse that personality into something that's never going to be able to talk, right. but just be talked about? Right. And then what is the world happening, and what's going on to that end? Um, and so that was like, I just started there from zero, like none of that was in there. And then we're like, you know, what is the end goals for each of the sections? And then thematically, each section kind of has a psychological test to it. And so I was trying to pull in some of that stuff into it and then, you know, just be amusing. Yep. Um, so. What were, do you, do you remember any specific like design, like moments when, it, you know, something clicked for you for that that was like... Um... Well, so part of that was we'd done that in Squirrel. In what? In Squirrel, a scripting Squirrel. language called oh, Squirrel. Okay. Which is really simple, but, so in Left 4 Dead's, you, we cannot, the writing cannot save any data across level transitions. Okay. So we can never remember what happened before. Yep. And all of a sudden they're like, hey, we can give you a byte of data that you can right. do bitwise operators on. And I'm like, oh yes, computer <laughs> oh, science right. degree well, coming data. through. Right. But all of a sudden, like if you've never had anything before. It's sure, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, you're like, oh my God. That's the experience back in the early 80s. Yeah. Right, and so, and then they gave me two. Um, and so <laughs> that was fun to see that. Um, it's hard. It's hard watching anything that's supposed to be funny play tested because you hear the same jokes a million times and play testers. Yeah, sure. Uh, my favorite was so. Did you start to doubt jokes? If like you know you hear it so many times, it's like a little bit. I I would always hear it once out of Ellen saying it, mm -hmm. and I'm like, if that worked, then then I just catalog that away as it worked. Um, but really, it was this thing that would happen is in single player, we would, we would record people playing and then record their faces. And in single player, everyone was stoic because mm -hmm. they're playing single player. And they get to the end of it. And in the interview, they'd be like, that's the funniest game I ever played. <laughs> and you're like, you didn't even crack a smile the entire time. Right, yeah, yeah. But when they played co-op, you, since you're playing with somebody else and often talking, you do all the facial mannerisms you do with other people. So you're laughing and you're getting into it. And I would send Eric and Jay the pictures of everyone laughing, right. playing yeah, yeah. my stuff, <laughs> and a stoic person <laughs> playing theirs. Like, who's the um, funny one now? Yeah. <laughs> but that whole thing was just, that was a hard process. And it was weird of like, you know, you would think writing at Valve and writing on that game would be considered like an important aspect of it. But like, we could not hold the writer's room. They kept kicking us out of every room. What does that mean? Like, we, would just want, we just wanted a room where we could put stuff up on the walls and say, this is our room, this is our writing's room, we're going to come in here in the mornings and I'll talk together and then go on in the afternoon and write. And we just kept getting kicked out of rooms and eventually we took over a, um, one of the meeting rooms um, and we were allowed to have it um, and could kick people out of it, but other people were allowed in it. I was about to say, I thought Valve was flat. Who kicks you out of the rooms? People who wanted to use it. Oh, that's it. No, you, you don't have no say. Like, people just come in. The Dota team would come in. They're like, we got 30 people. We need to have this meeting room. Yeah. And you're like, oh, all right. Okay. There's only three of us or whatever. Yeah. So. But there was, there was a point on that project that we're like, okay, this is not the worst game ever made. Right. We're doing okay. Uh-huh. And then had that fun moment of like, I remember we went on a press tour together, Eric and I. 
and we're like in um, Amsterdam and it's freezing cold, it's snowy and we get out of the, we could just take a break and we're sitting on this bridge and we just start laughing. We're like, holy shit, we're like, we made a game together. Yep. We're in Amsterdam doing the press on this. Yep. Holy hell. Yeah. Had it not kind of felt that way completely to you guys yet because you hadn't necessarily started a game? I think you're, we were so heads down, just uh-huh. working. Yeah. Like, we didn't have that moment of, like, oh, my God, people are asking us about this thing, right. and this is just incredible, and, like, what a great opportunity. Like, this is just amazing. Yeah, I guess I should ask. I mean, I, I did, I guess, to dive into this because you, you said Eric did most of the writing for Portal, but, like, what, what, what did it feel like when... Hate using the term meme, but like basically, like so many things from Portal just became like you know, people just adopted them and fell in love with them and like spread everywhere. And like maybe even got to the point where like you know, people started to get sick of them, right? Like, oh, yeah, what, what's that? What's no, that, that like? It's super strange, right? I mean, it's one of those like we have gags that we still remember from 18 years old, right? Like yeah, 35 sure. years ago, yeah, right? Right, but. It's weird to all of a sudden see some of that come up, and like it was great to see the praise that he got for that, and like um, everything, like that was just so amazing, right? That that's just such a thing. I remember uh, someone just sent me something that uh, uh, um, what's her face, uh, the singer. Come on, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, really famous young female singer um come on oh my god i cannot believe this like right now yeah like billy ellis yeah billy ellis uh such a i'm guessing guessing really well on these uh, (laughs) yes thank god you're here um some some fan had asked her about if she played video games and she mentioned portal oh nice right and so it's like a lot of that kind of thing where it's really weird uh connection but it's also that weird thing of like when we were making the website and all of a sudden you know like someone in the game industry would mention it or something of just like we still have that feeling of like we're just two guys from cleveland making jokes to crack each other up sure. and then all of a sudden you're like that's a real person like yeah. i've seen that person they've been on t- like it's still this weird disconnect right yeah it's 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 fun though yeah, yeah. my my uh 10 year old just loves portal he gets he gets the you know he's played he's played through all of it uh he gets like the um you know He's gotten all these different models of it. He paints them. Awesome. He's like, he just, you know, it's 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 great. I mean, he's he's a very mechanical, so like it makes sense how yeah. he like connects with the gameplay and he loves you know, but he loves the humor and the characters as well. And like, yeah, it's a really it's a really great thing to see. You know? Yeah, and that's an interesting game of the kind of the thing of um, the phrase I've used is uh, no one ever puts a game mechanic on a T-shirt, mm-hmm. right? It's just like all those other trappings. You can take something. The gameplay is good. Don't get me wrong. Like yeah. the puzzles are good, mm-hmm. but like, the, and it's it's essentially the whole game is all training in a way, right? Sure. But it's still fun to do, and you feel smart, and it's the puzzly thing. But it's that all that other stuff into that world that just draws you in and makes you kind of connect and, and live inside of that. And that was always, you know, I've always thought of that as really important. A lot of games don't do that in a way. Like I'm like, in one way, it's the cheapest thing you can do, right? In another way, it's the hardest thing you can do because you can do it wrong, and then it's right. like nails on a chalkboard. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that, yeah, that's absolutely the trickiest part because there are there are plenty of other first-person puzzly type games, right? And you know they've been they've been better or worse, but yeah, if you try to do if you try to do it, you do it poorly, it's probably worse than not doing anything at all, yeah. right? And and it's kind of hard to make that decision. Like you have to have a lot of confidence that you can do it at the right level. Um, and 
I mean, you kind of mentioned that you felt like the first portal was kind of, you know, you get valves and paying a lot of attention to it. So maybe that was like key to, you know, allowing yeah. that to work. Um, I guess we'll have to interview Eric. So yeah, yeah, you should. He's he's back in Cleveland. Oh, he's back in Cleveland. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. Well, won't be as easy then. <laughs> but, um, yeah. The uh, so one thing. I, one thing when I think about portal, like designing it, one of the things I, I found that would be, I assumed, would be really hard is there's so much stuff in the levels, and the only time it feels bad is this that general sense of like you, you don't you don't know where you're supposed to be paying attention to. You know, you've got, you know, you have this element over here, you have this element over there, but, um, you know, like in, in the very first levels, they're always so simple for the first one, right? So like you kind of can't miss what you're supposed yeah. to do. But once they become more, um, more just like an environment, um, then you get this, this weird problem of like, okay, there's, these are, these are the actual game pieces, and then these are the environment, and you can't really tell the difference between the two sometimes, right? And that seems to me like that would be hard. You know, it's, that's playtesting. Just so much playtesting. The incredible thing there was people playtested that whole game from start to finish, like Portal 2 in particular, mm -hmm. and never once leaked a story or anything. Sure, yeah. But so, many, so much playtesting. It's just so much playtesting. It's the only way that you get that feeling where... It feels obvious without being obvious, and yet you have that moment of like, oh, yeah, and then and it's just playtesting. It's right. playtesting, playtesting, playtesting. Do you have any vague sense of like how many iterations you think you went with that for the multiplayer version? Like, you know, there's a playtest, you see the results, you make a change, you do another playtest, you see the results, you make a change. Yeah, I mean, a lot. So a lot of, especially with the multiplayer, is we made some assumptions that you would play the single player and you sure. have the tool set it yeah. understood. And so then it was just making the aha moments inside of that where the single player, it was like making sure if they knew the tool, we could add a complexity without adding difficulty mm -hmm. and that worked. Yeah. And so it was just that. It was just like once you once they learn the tool, then you can bring it back to them. Puzzle games, you can't, you can't unplay. Sure. So if I've played through it, it's really hard for me to play with somebody new because yeah. I know how to solve them and you don't have those aha moments. Yeah. Um, and so that was an interesting thing. Like I hadn't thought of that. Of like, if you make something that tight, you lose that surprise that sure. second time. And that's why the level designer was such a great thing because you can just then have a bunch of levels that you can go off and make. Yep. Um, but that was still it was fun, especially the first couple times playing with people and kind of working through it. Um, yep. You know what does work? Playing it and then waiting ten years and playing it again. That's fine. <laughs> so I'm almost tempted to play it again because. So you know how like when you work on an Xbox game, you get the green disc where you can take it home and play uh -huh. it in there, but it's like, uh, so I remember I'd been crunching a whole bunch many years in a row, right? So I'm right. like, hey, we used to play Love for Dead with my wife. I'm going to go home. We're going to play Portal together. And we go down the first tubes and GLaDOS is talking and she just turns to me. She's like, I don't like this woman's voice. I'm like, I can't take this. Too fragile. <laughs> oh, no. Can't take, can't take feedback right now. Oh, no. And so popped it out and we've never gone back to play it. Oh, wow. One, one day we'll go back. Yeah. One day, but that was, that was, too, that was too much. Yeah. I, uh, when, I, when I'm no longer able to change a game, I'm really afraid to play it because like, at that point, you know, it's kind of like... <laughs> well, that's, well, that was like when we were going to ship... Um, all the writers would only play the different languages. None of us would play it in English again because we're oh. like, we just can't hear it anymore. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a good solution. Yeah. Like, 
yeah. We'll, we'll play test, but yeah, I can't hear you it. You can't hear the jokes over there. Okay. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's probably pretty good. And then you won't second guess yourself too much over it as well. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it is what it is and it's fine. Yeah. Wow. Um, all right, cool. Well, anything else that comes to mind about Portal 2? It's... No, just that was a fun project to work on um, in the sense of like, yeah, it was a good team and it just felt different then, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. So what, what came next then? The dark period. The, dark um, period. the okay. period where things were going to go to Source 2. Okay. Um, but Source 2 wasn't ready. Yep. And so there was a lot of stuff we wrote and put in and never will see the light of day kind of thing. Put into what? like uh, Some half-broken version of Source something. 2 engine. Yeah, okay. Like at that point, we still had Squirrel in the main branch, so I had written something that you had a sidekick that went with you that could look at the map and know what objects were in the map and be like, hey, we should cross the river yep. and like do all this kind of stuff. Um, that all just, I remember checking that in and going like, this will never see the night, light of day. Like this, yep. is, this is over. And then um, different versions of different games, you may figure there's a number three around, would spring up and die and spring up and die. And then um, Ito uh, was leading the CSGO team and I was like, hey, why don't you come, you know, help me out with CSGO. So went over to there and, you know, I think one of the things I do at, did at Valve was kind of like product-y stuff as well as like production. Mm -hmm. And so um, went over there, started working with them on that and started trying to figure out like, you know, how do you relaunch something that the community feels ownership over, right? We had this problem with Dota of the community didn't know who we were and we were touching their things. So sure. we had to be very careful. Yeah. Where CSGO is like the exact opposite. They knew us very well and didn't trust us because of Counter-Strike Source. They knew you too well. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was this fun thing though, like talking to the pros and like getting their feedback and finding out how many of the pros really played a lot of Left 4 Dead. Okay, right. Yeah, and through all of this, there's weird Left 4 Dead stuff going on, like doing the um, tie-in with Capcom for Resident Evil. Mm -hmm. Um, where we had the community make the things for it, or the Sniper series where the first video they sent me that they were gonna use for the trailer, uh, I had to give the feedback I always wanted to give in my life. Uh, that's too much Hitler. Because uh, they have you snipe Hitler at the end, and I'm like, eh, it just seems like a lot. I don't know. It's a lot of Hitler, okay. Um, but like, so like, you like, I was always working still on that in the background, but then um, Counter-Strike was fun, Did all the wanted to do all the character recordings with actual native speakers, but then they all didn't want to speak their native tongue. It was like always this weird back and forth. Or, why, didn't, why, why didn't they want to speak their native tongue? So they would have a local director there, and the director would be like, no, I'm in English. And I'd be like, no, 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 it's okay. Like These are barks. People will learn what that means yeah. over time, right? Yeah. Um, so there's some success, there's some not. I think the SAS is my favorite out of that. Um, mm -hmm. did it really, that was the actor doing it even more than the writing. Um, but also just the, the, the gameplay there was fun and I kind of tr seeing that come together as being something of like uh, having the confidence just to do Counter-Strike again. Sure. Do you like Counter-Strike? So when it first came out, I played it a ton. Sure. And then during that period, I played it a lot again. But my skill set and my ability to be that twitchy has definitely passed. Right. Sure. And so, um, you know, I, I would did some interviews with people in the community then, and I would just be honest about it. I'm like, you, you can beat me in Counter-Strike trivia sure. for sure. That's not what I care about. What I care about is listening to you guys and bringing sure. that back to the team and making sure we're, we're doing that, right? 
that was a weird experience because the community was very hostile. Um, yeah. I mean, I only sort of vaguely was aware of it because I, I'm not much of a Counter-Strike player at all. But my what I understand is like, you know, there was a rough reception and then over a, you know, over a long period of time, it eventually kind of got turned around. Is yeah. basically what happened? It's the classic, and, just keep updating. Just keep okay. listening and updating. Is and there any... Valve's is, good about that. Is there any high-level thing that's interesting about like things you got... Do you, things you got get things you guys got wrong because you didn't understand X and Y. Um, under, so, one of the arguments I had when I left that team to go work on something else was I thought it should be about the matches and all about the matches, not about other things like there's medals in the game and some other things. Sure, and it really is. It's about the matches. People care about the matches. And that sort of proved out eventually. I think so. And they also, well, they also got some other things really right that I I did not think weapon skins would be that exciting. Sure, boy. Boy, that's a billion dollar, uh, probably. Like, <laughs> uh, Good thing they didn't listen to you. Yeah. Guess, right? yeah, no, there's smart people on the team, right? Yeah. So, like, be clear. like, And also, whenever I say, like, oh, and I thought, it wasn't me alone, right? Sure. There's other people. Like, yeah. But it's just like, yeah, that game's about the matches and about, like, you know, you don't care about individual games. It's always the match, yeah, right? Sure. Like, you know if certain maps you're going to lose nine of ten of these. But if you win one, you can win the whole match. Yeah. Um, and it's like that kind of thing. It was just interesting. And also just... Players did respond to making it what it was before, but a cleaned up version that could then be used in esports and people wanted to watch again. Because we already saw, like, in 1.6, you know, sponsors were like, hey, that's a really ugly game. We don't want to sponsor that anymore. We don't want to be out in front of it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that wasn't us deciding that. That was right. the sponsors and just trying to help the, the pros in that. Um, yeah. And it was just... It was interesting was that I'd never been around like the people who were playing things that like this is gonna be my living. If you screw this up, you're gonna affect my living. Yeah. And it's super weird. You know? It's a totally different type of game design. Like you're you're now you're like you're the NFL basically. Yes. Right? And like that seems really like a totally different skill set, you know, to like how you should what you should do. But it's interesting for that game in particular of is it's very much like a pro sport in that you don't change much. Yeah, sure. Right. Some other games like Dota or LOL, you're you're or league, I guess, better than LOL. I don't know why I call it LOL. Uh, but, like, you're you're changing the meta to mix it up and keep it fresh. Where in Counter-Strike, you're really not changing the meta in the same way, right? You're making it about really honing in on that. And how much people practice and how much the muscle memory was about that. And, like, just how, how good the pros were to make it seem like they were cheating almost, that they were so good. Like, they just could anticipate things and run plays and plan. But it was all very hard to see where in Dota you could see the, the shift of the power and, like, the plays happen. Yeah. Okay. And so when you're working with Counter Strike, is your kind of like your satisfaction you get from the job is like seeing, you know, just seeing the community respond to to it? Because I mean, you're not writing, obviously, and you're uh, um, like, what what are you doing basically? Yeah. I mean, so for there, it was a lot about that of like making sure we're listening to the community, going back, talking with them, just spending a lot of time out there and interacting with them on that as well as just making sure um it's easy to break it mm-hmm. for them and make them very angry and making sure you're being honest about that and i remember doing like well an interview but as the interview was more for internal as much as it's external where i got one of the press guys queued up to ask me like ask me all if this is gonna be in the game it's like all the stuff that's in modern shooters and i just was like no 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 it's a confidence of like seeing how the community reacts to that and they're like that's awesome right we don't want Call of Duty's cool that you can call in airstrikes, but we don't want that in this game, right? right like, sure. so you want things different. 
and you don't want to ape the other people. Um, yeah. You want to own your own thing. What was the like? What was your guys's communication method with the? I mean, I, knowing how Valve works, I assume you guys probably would have hired a couple people that were like hardcore into the community, or like what? Like what was your method of communication? Um, so, so that's one of the things I picked up that I later did in VR was finding out who kind of the hubs in the community were, right? And then talking with them. Mm-hmm. And so there were some people in the community already that um, were just great resources to talk with and introduce us to people. And, you know, Ido had the right idea of bringing in the pros, just like a whole groups of them at a time and just listening and then going out to where they were competing and listening and talking. And yeah, it's just a long process. I mean, it's a very active community. I mean, 1.6 still exists and still being played, right? Sure. Yeah. It was weird. It also made me realize I don't want to ever do those kind of competitive games. I don't think I'm cut out for that. Yeah, yeah. I would think it'd be kind of exhausting. Like I, um, it, it just or just in general, I think live games is can be kind of exhausting. Like I want to feel like, and, and it's weird. I mean, I, games I work on, I tend to work on for four or five years. But you know, I feel like it's important that there's some point where you feel like you can step away from it, right? And uh, for, for me, for me, and. For, uh, and it's not all games are in that box, you know? Yeah, I guess for, for me, it was just less that, but more of just the how the minutia of what they cared about. Right. And I cared about that they cared about it, but I didn't really care about it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I as, a, as, a, as a game maker myself, I'm like, yeah, whatever. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of hard to, because you're not, you're not aiming for a specific design goal anymore. You're just yeah. trying to like, you yeah. know, you're trying to get the number exactly where they want to. And, and at that point, at that point, you've left the space of a theoretical audience, right? You've got your audience, period. Yes. So, you know, it's it's a service industry, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So what ha- what came after uh, Counter-Strike? Um, start of another project that didn't go anywhere. And then... Is there any general... Tr- uh, commonality to like things that didn't work inside um, the Valve. Like you really, mentioned, you've kind of alluded to like three or four things. That, like, it kind it, of it really was that the engine wasn't able to support going forward, and that we couldn't get engineer support okay. for what needed to happen, and so it was just kind of a dead end. So then I worked. I think around that time I worked with Bad Robot mm-hmm. on um, a TF2 mod, okay, which is like the soccer ball game inside of there, um, and. Gabe had had a relationship with Bad Robot, and at one point, um, Gabe was going to win the Lifetime Achievement Award from Dice. Uh-huh. So I got tasked with like recording people giving the the speech. Right. I'm like, hey, Gabe and JJ know each other. We should get J- JJ to say something. That'd be like a nice little yep. on it. So I I call that team. I talked to David Baranoff down there, and he's just like, well, hey, JJ's got to give this talk at Dice as well. Why don't um, Gabe and JJ do something down there? If you do that, JJ will record this. Right. I'm not exactly blackmail like that, but like <laughs> kind of thing, right? So I start talking to, to, to David, and so then we get tasked with essentially writing JJ and Gabe's speech, okay. which they're way smarter than us. <laughs> we shouldn't be writing this. But I'm like, if the end line can be, and we're going to make games, and then Gabe says, and we're going to make movies, no one's going to remember anything else. <laughs> right, sure. I'll write it, okay. right? And so then we wrote it, and they did it, and then kind of became friends with them and out of that grew that they wanted to we were like you should try to make a mod first and get your your hands wet 
And so then um, worked with uh, Thomas Stain's company down in Texas. I forget what that company was called at the time. But like, which to me, Thomas Stain is like still like from the ritual days and like, like, like yep. he's, a, he's a star to me, right? Of like right. getting to meet someone who's just as big as JJ. Um, and that, but the, like everyone there was just a really good group to work with and fun. The, the, the premise was always hard. And, you know, Hollywood, I don't think, understands that the premise, the idea is the cheap thing. It's the execution that's the hard thing. And sure. I think maybe they learned some of that through there. Um, but so that was going on for a bit. And then um, at some point during there, like we hired Doug Church and we were doing some, he did some scripting stuff as well and some other version of some stuff we were working on. And we did released a version of scripting for Left 4 Dead 2 mm-hmm. that was really in-depth, and he was working on some of that. And to get home, um, it was a half hour quicker for me to drive Doug Church home so that I could use the HOV lane and then go out of the way to go to his house and then go home. Okay. So I just started doing that every night. Right. And it ends up like going home with Doug Church uh, to be, bug him and talk to him about game design is a freaking so pretty interesting. Yeah. great thing, right? Because yeah. that dude is so generative and smart. And he had then went to go work on the VR stuff. And I was like, eh. And then um, him and Abrash showed me uh, the the Valve room. Yeah. And there's like a third room in there and I saw it. And I'm like, oh my God. Like, I get the things you can do in this space. And so they're like, why don't you come down and work with us on VR? We don't know what that means. Yeah. Like, just figure it out. I'm like, okay, sure. I don't really have anything else that interesting going on. I'll, I'll go do that. And that was just really sitting, and then Abrash left shortly after. Uh, but that was literally like sitting in the corner, listening to engineers give demos and talk about a thing that I didn't really quite understand, to get up to speed and understand that, and go back and talk to them and say like, hey, are these the things you're saying? Like, okay. But like this was before HTC showed up or anything, and then all of a sudden, um, Facebook invested in Oculus, and Gabe's thing was like, you know, this is gonna distort the market. And he was right. right it distorted the market that all of a sudden, you had so much money in there that all the software was going to get too much money into it. And the market size to sell into would never be big enough to support that. So you'd yeah. always be selling every game at a loss. And you couldn't just compete by trying to sell a game then. Yeah. Right? It became this bad space. And so we were like, hey, maybe we should open source everything we've built in the room and all of this. And there were a lot of people trying to figure out what to do and work on it. And I was going out to events and meeting other um VR people, I remember meeting um, Denny from Cloudhead Games and like how he talked about it was like, oh my God, all right, this even makes more sense to me now. And now I'm giving demos and I'm using the words back to people. Um, and like really, really understanding it, but realizing it was gonna die. And then right as we thought it was gonna end, HTC came along and said, hey, you know, why don't we do this with you? And I'm like, oh yeah, I can get behind that. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm gonna do yet, but I can get behind that. And then. Um, Internal stuff happens, and uh, Ken Birdwall takes over kind of the the hardware side, and then Augusta Butlin and me do the software side, where we're going to do like all the demos and work with that outside partners. And that was fun. So like I just essentially was going out and meeting a bunch of people, deciding who we wanted to work on, and really was evaluating by like how easy are you to work with. So okay. try their thing, give them feedback. Do they tell me to get lost? They change it. Do they talk about why that's not good? Like, how do we interact and all of that? And so then, we pick that initial group, make them sign an NDA to sign an NDA, which was, which was funny. <laughs> and then you know tell them, hey, this is what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And um, so then started working with them. Like, went off and actually delivered those. First, well, we, me and Doug Church 
scheduled the trip, I remember, like, December 11th, and we had no dev kits yet. Right. We're like, we're either going to go to Europe before Christmas and have a good time, or we're going to be dropping off dev kits. We'll see. Yeah. And dev kits literally got shipped out independently of us for us to go then deliver them. And so then we were giving them the people and, you know, talking about, like, how to work on it. And Doug's, like... Doug is so great for that because he would walk into a room and someone would say their idea and he would like give you 500 ways to expand on that idea and take it crazy. Um, and so work through with them and then, you know, really kind of thought of how to market what we were doing and um, how to um, really show it. Mm-hmm. So like a couple things are one is there's a, there's a good book people should still read even though it's a little dated. Uh, I think it's 22 Immutable Rules of Marketing. Mm-hmm. But it's like, so what happens if Oculus owns VR? How, what are you selling then? We're selling room scale VR. Right. And if you notice, whenever we talked about it early on, it was always room scale VR. Yeah. It was never VR. Yeah. Right. So we, we, we created a category that we could be number one in. Um, and then things like, um, so telling everybody who are making demos, hey, that demo's got to run on its own. It can't have any human interaction. Yep. You totally got to nail it. It's got to be from start to finish. You got to handhold them all the way through. And then two weeks before we did demos, we're like, hey, okay, so where do people get stuck? We're actually going to have somebody in their head that could talk them through it. But now they should have minimal that they have to talk about because you've made this, but I know everyone gets stuck. So, you know, how do we help you? And we had, I had kind of created these tracks so that I thought, surely someone's not going to get the demo done. And here we have like everyone, there's two people in every track and we could figure it out. And everyone came through. So we had the actual multiple tracks. And then, um, and that was just fun of like, so flew out to Barcelona to do pre-press with um, HTC. And my whole thing was like, don't talk stats, don't talk, it's all about experience, don't right. um, let them talk about it. And then actually Doug stayed in um, uh, uh, Barcelona to um, set up the demo rooms when they became available at uh, Mobile World Congress. Because it was like Mobile World Congress was a few days before um, GDC. Right. And that was like, he, he, he did the hardest thing because I was like all the, hey, that doesn't actually work how we thought it did. Now I'm like halfway around the world from you. How do I fix this? Right. And like we had to set that up. So by the time we hit the GDC, everything was way was smoother. Good. Yeah. But uh, it, we, we, like, we, we did that. Um, people were under embargo though. And so then, you know, I flew back to um, GDC and kind of kicked around waiting for everyone else to get there. Um, we set up, and I just remember the night before, like it was towards the end of the night, and it's all engineers in there, and they know it better than I do, and they're mm-hmm. like, oh, we have to recalibrate every room because this thing's off, there's something wrong. Right. I was like, I gotta go, I'm losing my mind. <laughs> like this is, gonna be, this is gonna be a shit show, this is gonna be horrible. And went out with some friends, and I remember I was walking back, to, I just decided to walk back from the hotel with some Australian guy who I've never met again in my life. Uh-huh. But just, I was clearly freaking out, like in a bad case. And he just hung out and talked with me as we walked back yep. re- really far through iffy neighborhoods. And uh, it was just like my realization also midway through of like, no one else has seen this. I'm ex- worried about this, this thing. 100% of it. Mm-hmm. If they just see 80% of it, yep, sure. it's going to be awesome. Yeah. We'll be fine. I'm like I slept okay that night. And then uh, the next morning, of course, the internet's problems, so we can't show the Google experience. Mm-hmm. Google wasn't happy, uh, and but all of a sudden the press is hitting, and it's just like this super high. All, like all of a sudden, even people internally at Valve that were not pro VR right. were like, "Oh my God, like this is super positive," 
And there's a couple of things we did is one, um, like originally when we do demos, we'd always sit with the people and talk with them afterwards. Right. And uh, me and Doug Lombardi were like, no, no, no talking with them. Don't give them words to describe what they saw. Make them struggle. Do it themselves. Like, they're going to have to come up with fantastical words to describe because you're not going to understand what they saw. Right. Not, we don't want them to talk about resolution or anything like that. That seems kind of risky if you're really worried about a specific message. Uh, it was just more just how crazily great it was. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, just... I don't, it, and the minute you start talking about resolution, you're comparing it yeah, versus... Sure. But the big thing is... I don't know if you remember that is they were wired controllers yeah. and you actually had a USB hub on your thigh or on your, on your around your waist yeah. on a belt. Yeah. I'm like, man, all everyone's going to do is talk about that fucking belt. Like, it's like that belt, the full Monty, we called it after Monty, <laughs> the guy who came up with doing it. I'm like, this is just going to be a disaster. No one mentioned it. Yeah. Right. And it's that classic thing in, of games of like everything matters and nothing matters. Mm -hmm. Like it ends up that didn't matter. It was everything else that you did mattered. Yeah. And so that was that was a good high. Like that was, uh, I remember the flight home with Gus and just turning and going, I know what the I know what the word giddy means now. <laughs> well, that was also new. I mean, that was like, yeah. And you guys had your own angle on it. And I mean, what what is it that what is it that like you what is it that you like about VR? And like, what is the potential that you see there? Like, what are the things that 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 made made you want to be involved with it? All right, so I'll frame it the way, so early on when I realized that we were going to do this HTC thing and what was going to happen, and I realized there's going to be a lot of travel involved, I brought my wife in mm -hmm. to see the room. And I said, hey, this is why I want to spend time away, essentially, yeah, right? Sure. And I'm like, this is a new medium that is very different. Like, we talk about being, you know, in the game or being, you know, kind of wrapped up into it. Like, this just... This just puts you in it in a way nothing else does. Um, we can shape how people start thinking about this differently by what we do in the next six months. Like I'll never have a higher impact in anything I do. Sure. Right. And some of that is, if you notice, all the original demos by Valve, none of them have guns in them, none of them have violence in them. Okay. Yeah. Not that guns and games are bad or anything else, but it's like we have enough of that. Let's go after different stuff. Right. Let's try to do different things. Let's embrace weird and crazy art and right. um, all of those kind of things. Um, and right. so I told her that's, you know, that's why I want to do this because I have the chance to have that influence on it. It was one of those things of like, even internally, I don't think people realized of like how different what content we were showing was in that way. Um, just because like, you know, I think... Um, um, the guys over who did um, Arizona Sunshine actually had a version of Arizona Sunshine to show, and then they had their Little World game. And I'm like, do the Little World game. Mm -hmm. Don't do the Arizona Sunshine. Like, that'll come later, and that'll be fine. Um, that'll be great. The Vertigo games. Um, mm -hmm. And, like, don't worry about that. Like, you guys will nail that. But, like, when we first showed this, let's put people in a different headspace and thinking about this in a different way and what the possibilities are. Yeah. So it seems like putting someone in a turret and shooting things would be such a short... So it's like an easy shortcut from like what people know of video games and to yes. something that would easily work in, in VR. So. And so we had fishing, we had exploring the world, we had a job simulator, we had painting. Right. Right. Do you, you remember one of the first experiences you had where like it, it clicked, like one of the specific games? Oh, for the, out of being made? That would be yeah. Tilt Brush. Okay. Yeah. Tilt Brush. Those guys are super smart. Um, we actually had them at Valve for an extended period. So one of the things early on, the realization of like bring people in, 
because we learn as much from them as they do from us. And they got all the play testing in and they realized like, oh, you know, originally the game's called, or the painting app's called Tilt Brush because you would literally paint on a surface and then tilt it, paint yeah. on the surface and tilt it. Yeah. Versus just having free form because yeah. they didn't have controllers. Of course they didn't, right? And so like putting the palette on the controller and all of that came from those play tests. But it was just like just seeing that and being in that world and being able to, you know, it's, you're talking back of like the Commodore 64 and and having that impact of being able to program it. And I remember yeah. the first time making a balloon go across my TV screen, and making my mom come down to see it. And like <laughs> I made something on the TV screen yeah. move. Yeah. It was that same moment of like painting something in the world with tilt brush and also I'm like, oh my God, this is real. Like this, this an immediacy to it that just isn't lost. Yeah. And then it was just fun, you know, after it got launched, was just, I was just a big proponent of now we can't control it. We should, we need to let it out. We need to let people just show it as they will. And like the first people out the next week were Weaver were like, hey, we're gonna go show it at this event. And I'm like, yeah, go. It was gonna be scary. Like we had all this set up and everything else and just go. And then it was just supporting people and going out. But then it became this weird, like I just worked nonstop then because you know, you would there's some French developer and you talk him into using sure. this over the Oculus, and then all of a sudden he's going to show, you know, Hermes and the setup's bad and he calls you and it's like 2 a.m. your time and you answer the phone because you're yeah. like, I got this guy to yeah. do this. I, I feel responsible. This, yeah. I need to help him. And so that just became nonstop of that kind of stuff, which is honestly kind of fun in a way because it was so crazy, the amount of stuff. I mean, my thing always is like, I just like to see cool stuff. And all of a sudden, here's all these people creating all this cool stuff. And I'm like, I'm the first person that gets to see so much of it. Yep. And it was just so much fun and just making sure to be supportive and giving them whatever they needed and trying to help, right? Yep. Well, cool. All right. Um, so how, uh, how long did you keep working on that then? So I wanted to quit after we launched. Okay. Um, just my dad had passed away on that year up to the launch of VR. And it was a little rough. Um, and it was actually, the valve's great of though, like like every flight I took back to Seattle, I stopped at Cleveland almost like right, right. for like a day or two and just sure. hung out with him. Um, but like, I just kind of been like, okay, like I got over the giddiness of this, the launch was fun. And like, I never wanted to do hardware again. Talk about like not wanting to do competitive games. Right. Don't do <laughs> hardware, <laughs> it's horrible. Yeah. Like you have these moments of like, well, should we include this cable or not? If we include this cable, it's gonna be $1.5 million because this is $3 cable times yep. 500,000 units. But maybe we don't need to include this cable. And you're like, ah, oh, I don't wanna <laughs> decide that. Right, and so like that, this was like a lot. And then some people there were like, you know, just we still need the support of devs for the first year. Why don't you help out? Um, so I stayed around and then um, kind of waited till everyone was about to go on vacation and just said, hey, I'm out of here. Yeah. And quit. Uh, so quit Valve. Yeah. I mean, I, I uh, great respect for everyone there. Really like everyone working there. Um, really had a fun time. They absolutely let me do crazy things and like at that point I was doing as much steam outreach as I was doing anything else like I was traveling the world wherever I wanted to go I didn't check right. I didn't make schedule with anybody else I just picked where I wanted to go and it was all east like eastern Europe I tried to reach out where they had never met a valve person before sure. right right um and so it had been great but I just wanted to go back and making games like I did the realization with my dad thing was like okay I have this many years in life sure. and he died at 91 had led a good life but I'm like, I have this many years before I won't be able to make things anymore. What, what do I really want to do? I want to go make games. Right. So how can I make games? I don't think I need to make, make so many more games, so. Yeah. 
And was that that path just wasn't available with Valve? Um, I knew what they were making. Sure. Um, and they were right. Like um, Robin had started con condensing all the different teams into like, let's just make this thing called Alex. Yeah, sure. Um, and that made total sense, but it really wasn't like I hadn't been on those teams for a while now. I'd been doing other things, and I just didn't know if I felt like trying to fit in there and because they were already well on the way. They to... were they were already going, and I don't really I didn't really want to make that. I felt like I'd done a little of that already, kind of thing, and just kind of wanted to do something different. Um, and I knew the guys over at Boss. I knew um, Emre and uh, Enrique well. We talked about working together for a little bit, and I was just like, oh, you know, let's try this. Let's see if this works out. Was there, um, I'm sure, sure had asked this, but like, at some point, was there just like you wanted to experience something outside of Valve? It had been too long, or like, I'm just kind of No, curious. I mean, if I think if there had been the right project internally, I probably would have just moved on to that. Right. Maybe. I don't know. That is a weird, weird headspace, right? Sure. Like, and so. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you spent your last two or three years or whatever working on Counter-Strike and hardware at some point you're kind of yeah wondering like what's where is well, this going well like HR asked or like well you know Gabe and Scott I want to talk with you and I'm like you know there's no like number or anything they can offer yeah. me like this is just done I'm happy to talk with whoever but like there's zero animosity here sure there's just nothing but support you know love for you guys so it's just where I am yeah it's me not you yep okay all right, so there was a project at BASA. Yeah, and so we had tried to start that at BASA, and that was really trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. Okay. And that was just like, you know, I, I still talk to those guys sometimes. It's a great deal of respect, but I think we both realized, like, this just wasn't... It wasn't what I thought I was signing up for. It wasn't going the way they thought it was going to go. Um, yeah, it just wasn't working sure. out. Sounds right. like a I, I feel I feel bad for it, and I think they feel bad for it. But you know, like for me, part of it was like, hey, I got to go work in England. It's a punk rock kid, growing up, getting right. to spend a bunch of time in England, in no, London. Uh, yeah, I'm taking it. Right? Like, did you move there for a while? No, I was just there every six weeks for okay. like a week. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's a great place. I mean, for sure. And it had this fun thing of like, so I would fly in on Monday. I'd fly Sunday to Sunday because uh -huh. it was half price compared to flying Sunday to Saturday. Sure. Which okay. meant I would wake up Saturday morning and being like, I have nothing I have to do a today. Whole, a whole day in London. Except whatever I want to yeah, do. Sure. And so sometimes I was catching up with friends. Sometimes I was just wandering around. It's a beautiful city to walk around. Yeah. Like, I love London. Yeah, me too. That, I, that sounds awesome. Absolutely <laughs> love London. Like those are the freest days of just, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, can you talk about what type of project it was? Or Yeah, it was um, tr trying to take some ideas of uh, generative storytelling. Okay. Um, and how do you do that? And how do you do that in a meaningful way? Um, and it's something I've been really fascinated with for a long time and, and done some experiments with. But, uh, you know, for that kind of thing, you really need someone who's done the traditional ways a bunch of times and understand where they fall down and how you want to go around it where... They have very young teams there. And so when you have a young team, what they're doing is really um, doing what they've seen other people do versus doing something new. Yeah. Um, and so that just became kind of problematic. Okay. Are there games you think of that, like generative storytelling is a super hard problem. Lots of, a lot of people have tried and failed yes. in, that, in that category. Um, although, interesting, the ones I would normally think of, actually there's 
Britain seems to be very good at producing people who like are great writers in games. But uh, like, what are, are there some examples of games you think have done this well? I, mean, I think when you start looking at like RimWorld and some things like those, there's sure. some interesting things that come out of there. There's more different kind of things I wanted to do around that space. So I don't think anyone's quite done what I was hoping to do. Right. Sure. Right. I mean, a lot of when I think about games and I think about design space, I think about like. I don't want to solve what the designer thinks is like, oh, designer thinks this is how money works. And now I have to think of their way of how money works. And that's how I have to solve the problem versus, hey, if I set something on fire, it should start on fire. Right. Right. And so how do you do that with a storytelling world where, hey, if I do this thing to these people, if they find out I did that, they're going to be mad. Right. Like to me, that was the interesting thing. And so how do you do that? I still want to come back and, and make a game like that. Yeah. The tough part, I mean, I think you can set up a lot of that stuff and it's hard. the tough part for me has always been like, okay, but then what? Like, you know, you got the simulation, but it, it may be just, it's not the type of game that I typically well, it becomes it, with. Well, it becomes a civ problem, right? Are you playing to the end of the game or are you just screwing around for a while and then you're done right. at some point? Yeah. Um, I mean, have you played many of the Paradox games? Like, Some, you know, yeah. Computer Kings and all this stuff. It's, it's, it's been a strange experience for me because it's like this bizarre world where the players apparently don't care about winning the game anymore, which yeah. know, with Civ, like, it's not like that's the only thing they care about, but they really care about that one specific thing. And it's it's such a different approach, but it's just, and oftentimes it's the same audience. So yeah. it's just like an expectation thing and how you can how you can have the sense of like the same people, same person can sit down to two different games and they, they bring completely different expectations. And, you know, like in Civ, it's very hard to take anything, ever take anything away from the player. Yeah. Right. Where like, that's almost the point of playing a lot of like the Paradox games. Right. But, but to be clear, Civ 4 domination mode and marathon okay. speed is the only way to play. Right. <laughs> okay. All right. You're one of those. Huh? Uh, no, I, yeah. So I actually have a game of Civ going now. Uh, I okay. almost always have Civ 4 is the one I stopped at. Okay. So, so thank you. That's uh, um, I, I approve. That's fine. Uh, but yeah, no. <laughs> marathon, but, by the way, marathon mode is is something we stuck in because um, it, there becomes this point where you don't you don't necessarily know you, you can't actually anticipate what the audience wants. People kept asking for games that take for civ games that take longer. Yeah. Right. And the the, the typical thing they say is they want to spend more time with knights or they want to spend more time with muskets or whatever. And so you know we added these modes to like okay well we'll let you extend the game. So I think there's like I forget what it's called but the, you know there's normal there's long and then there's short. And then they kept they still kept complaining. I'm just like okay you chuckleheads whatever. Nice. I'm gonna like turn it up to eleven. I don't care. And you know it's like people still love it. It's it's it's. It's kind of confounding, right? Because like there is no one, and yet it's a lesson. Like there's, there's definitely not. It, it's wrong to think there's one way to play your game. Like for sure. Um, well, especially that's a game that I play a lot. Where like I'm just clearing my head. Sure. So I'll start up a game, and then like half the games I start, I just stop at some point, and then you know out of that like one of ten, I go all the way through. Sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's still it's still a relaxing way. Yeah. Cool. But right. the, the other problem with procedural story, to back to the procedural story, thing, the yep. other problem with that, though, is um, what we talked about earlier was personality in games and how do you do that yep. inside of there if you're not controlling all the speech and everything else. And I didn't have a good solve for that, and it struggled that way. Yeah. Okay. So difficult project. Didn't quite work out. What, what happened after that? Um, so I realized it wasn't working out, um, and I was... Like it was the year anniversary essentially of starting working out. Yeah. I'm like, okay, 
I need to go do the thing. And I had wanted to work with uh, Dr. Kimberly Smith. I was going to involve before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I can't get any name right. So <laughs> friend was having a birthday down in LA, uh, Julie Hyde. And I'm like, well, here, I'm going to go fly down. And I'm like, hey, Kim, can you go to dinner Friday night? Okay. How did you know her? Um, I'd actually shown her VR stuff. Oh, okay. And from there, and she was a professor up in Canada. And yep. we'd done some game jam stuff. And uh, um, she got me stopped at the border because they were thought I was smuggling in uh, Billy Bookshelves from Ikea. From Ikea? Oh, really? <laughs> oh, no. It's so strange. There's a, uh, uh, this is a complete aside, but there's this, that, that guy who smuggles Trader Joe's stuff. To Canada, do you know about him? No. Yeah, there's a. What's, oh, I can't remember the name of his of his his outfit. You know, it's, it's like a play. It's a pun on the name Trader Joe's, but um, yeah, because there's no Trader Joe's in Canada for whatever reason. I, I forget why they haven't been able to make that work. But obviously, the thing of this unique about Trader Joe's is a lot of the food there. It's it's unique, right? Yeah. Like you just can't get anywhere else. And of course, people in Vancouver come down to Seattle all the time, so he would just go into Trader Joe's and like load up. You know, carts and carts and carts of stuff. Take it to Canada and sell it. I don't even know at a markup, but I'm not even sure wow. if he was trying to make. But he would just be selling it in Canada, and for whatever reason, Trader Joe's decided they didn't like this. So then they started looking out for him. So then it became a whole process of him hiring people to come down here to buy stuff <laughs> to bring it up to Canada, and then Trader Joe's was trying to anticipate because if someone buys more than X of this and more of Y of this, and they're like, oh, we think this guy, you know, this is a person who's a, who's a mule for so-and-so to bring the Trader Joe stuff north of the border. Oh, wow. It's, there was a great, I think, plant money on this. It's, it's worth it's worth. That's crazy. Up. Yeah, it is, it is totally crazy. Yeah, I did, they just saw all the Billy bookshelves in the trunk <laughs> in the back of my car, and they're like, what's going on? And right. I'm like, well, actually, these VR headsets are worth a lot more. Like, <laughs> and I got six of these. And they're like, no, you can't bring the bookshelves over across the border. <laughs> and they threw me out of the country. And I'm like, eh, what's, how organized are they? I just went down to the next border crossing <laughs> and put like a towel over the Billy bookshelves and drove through. And that was fine. Oh, that's great. And then made sure, hey, Canada, I didn't bring back any of those Billy bookshelves. They're all still there. Yeah, that was in the headset. So take that. <laughs> um, yeah, this is weird. Yeah. It's like they're not part of the U.S. It's strange. <laughs> well, also that border crossing. As someone who's crossed the borders around the world, that yeah. is the most onerous border crossing. Sure. It's like they just want to show each other up for being jerks. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. All right, so where were we? Um, um, so the boss's stuff ended, started yeah. with Kim. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I went down and had a pitch deck on my phone. I'm like, hey, this is the kind of company, this is the yeah. kind of game. And she's like, sure, let's do this. And so that's, we're like, hey, but we can't really do anything right away. We have no money. Like, we'll figure that all that out. But really sat and spent a bunch of time and talking to a lot of people about, like, formation of the company, mm-hmm. how to think about different aspects of the company. Bonus is a big thing. Like, sure. most people do it wrong, I think. Yeah. Um, and just a lot of those kind of things. And then started it up. All right. And um, been hiring since. I uh, used to be all in Seattle, and now we are um, remote studio with people spread all over. We're 20 people. Right. Um, and looking to ship this fall. Right. Meaning, as I said, fall means before Christmas. 
<laughs> in my book. I don't know. We'll see. Well, the you technical, know, uh, I think definition. we were I think we were set to ship in September, and then everybody decided that every game that they had been holding sure. back during the pandemic should ship in September. Yeah. And we're like, yeah, we should probably get out of the way yeah, of that. It's going to be a crazy year for sure. Um, can you, you know, tell us about the game then? Sure. So, um, you know, it's it's four player co op. Okay. Sci fi game and. You know, I think... If, so, like, Echoes of Left 4 Dead? So, Left 4 Dead in Space might be the elevator pitch one sure. would make to start. Okay. And that is definitely where the original team were like, hey, let's get to this part, and now let's make it our own. Okay. And, you know, I don't think Left 4 Dead released today would have the same success it had back then. Um, because... The players are used to some different accoutrements around the game and their investment of time and how they think of, like, um, the value of that time. Okay, like um, progression-wise? Well, yeah, progression-wise, okay. and it's kind of the meta to the game. Yeah, sure. Um, but also, like, there's other things we wanted to do. So, like, we look at that and go, okay, so I know, you know, Left 4 Dead, and especially I knew stuff while we were making the game. I knew stuff while we were making Left 4 Dead 2, and then I went back and kind of really tore apart everything in my head. And, uh -huh. You know, some of these conversations with, like, Doug Church and talking about it as well, of, like, how do we think about this? Why did this work? Why was it successful with this group? And kind of really tearing it apart and thinking, okay, now if I'm just gonna make a four-player cooperative game now, what are the things that I would want to do to enhance you know, replayability? What hurts replayability? What are the things that makes co-op go further? Right. You know, what are the, like, to that point of what are the creatures that we're making because the creatures are gonna inform how the players behave and we wanna have certain behavior out of those players and how can we make it happen more? And then, you know, one of the things um, with it is really making a bigger investment in the background AI that's running everything. So for this game, the AI is not just deciding when creatures spawn, but it's actually deciding like, hey, you're not that good of a team. We're gonna spawn these things now. For this reason. Yeah, where if you're a really good team, we may spawn like the brutes is hard thing to kill. We may spawn two of those at once at you and different mixes of things, as well as like everything we're placing into the world. We may make ammo a little bit more scarce, or we may put it off the path, like we actually know the golden path most people use through the map. So right. if you're a good team, there's gonna be nothing on that path. You're gonna yeah. have to go search every room for stuff. Or if you're a bad team, we're gonna keep spawning health kits ahead of you because we're like, yeah, we gotta keep feeding you and keeping you alive. And really just trying to have that experience, not where this flat in the middle, but instead to be super spiky up and down, you know, still having those like moments of like nothing happening and then chaos, but having that understanding because we understand the player and we're gathering some data on them over time and then going from session to session and saying, hey, we know you've been playing with these four people 10 times and you've been having this kind of experience. We can go crazy now because we know we're not giving this to you all the time. Because right, you have that if you're starting from zero every time with, with a player, you can never make it too difficult, even if it's random, because they just make an unlucky roll and it just may be punishing too many times in a row. Right. And so instead we can have more fun with that. And then we set it in sci-fi so that we can do more like crazy weapons, spectacular ways to kill things and ways to solve problems. And, you know, one of the things we really realized in the Left 4 Dead series is a lot of what makes the game work is you understanding what's about to happen, you formulating a plan, that plan going horribly wrong. Sure. Right. And so making sure there's space for that, for players to understand. So that means you have to understand what's going on. They have to have tools that allow them to adapt. They have to have a different set of tools at different times, so they have to do things in different ways and those kind of things, right? Okay. Can you can you maybe describe at a high level, like, you know, however however good Left 4 Dead was, like things you're trying to fix about it? Um, so one thing is like the gunplay is pretty flat in Left 4 Dead. You mm -hmm. have a set of weapons that are um 
it's kind of your personal style of what you want to choose, but there's there's a really kind of narrow band that they all live inside of. Yeah. And so we have a lot more variety inside of this. We have a perk system that you can apply to the weapon so that you can actually change your weapon over time. And that lets you, instead of having like tiers in them, it's really your investment in them and mm -hmm. what you can do. Um, and just really it's a lot about giving you a lot more um, optionality, a lot more inputs mm -hmm. is a way to think about it so that your set of outputs are greater. And so that gives you a lot more variety that you have you know, a lot more things you can bring into the battle or mix up and change. And then having that overall AI where the first time we had it, where it really started reacting and you could go to the end of the play test and someone would be like, I don't know, man, I, I didn't get double brutes or anything this time. Maybe it's not working. And you know, the other team's like, we, yeah, we got nothing. Like it was super hard and like, Wait, hold you on. Barely you said through. the other team? Well, so no, if, like we, so when we play test in the morning, we play, oh, okay. we play test Monday, Wednesday, Friday, yeah. you have four play tests yeah. going or five play tests going, you can almost judge how good players are by what they what encounter. What they ended up with, yeah, yeah. Right, and so, I, yeah. man, you know, ammo was really scarce. You're like, oh, okay, you guys were, you guys were killing it. Yeah, but I guess the trick is like, how do you also judge whether those calls were the right ones? Like, it's cool that the game is, is adapting, but how do you know, like, the adaptation is making the play experience better? Outside play tests. Right. A lot of, it's, it's every week outside play testers, watching them, seeing how they're going, see if they understand those things. Some of the meta stuff is back to the, hey, we're game designers, this is how we think this progression would work, that would bring people in. We think this would be interesting, we think. You know, looking at the data, I could tell you more people played easy on Left 4 Dead 2 than they played hard. Hmm, right. So some people just want a social space they can hang out. Sure. Yeah. So then if that's true, then we want to make sure that those people who want to play hard still have a place to do it, but we don't need to maybe express it in the main game. Or we're going to have like weekly challenges that let that expression of hardness happen or different variations that can happen. You know, kind of the mutation idea that we did in Left 4 Dead we can do here. Um, you know, and so having those kind of things happening inside of the game, and this just that'll be that's the bet that that'll work, and that'll give you investment because you can make investment into doing those um, weekly challenges differently. Um, and really, for us right now, it starts at co-op, and we're not worried about the versus mode that will come later. Okay. But really, like nailing down what this cooperative feeling feels like, and you know, having making sure things are. So players are working together versus working at each other's odds, right? It's, it's really easy to make the competition of like, I gotta be the first person to encounter this. Like the perk system, originally the perks were things you just found in the world. Right. But then it became really clear, someone would run ahead and try to get all the perks or get to pick the perks. So instead we have the idea of these meta compilers. Um, and when you find a meta compiler, you're now excited you found it. You wanna share that with the rest of the team, but everybody still gets something out of it, right? Okay. In Meta Compilers, I don't know if you read much Neil Stevenson, but um, yeah, no. uh, Diamond Age, in one of his books, there's the idea of like, what if uh, the printing material for 3D printers was cheap enough that everything was free? Sure. Okay. And that's where the name comes from. So a little, little, little nod to Neil on that. Okay. All right. Cool. Um, it's, it seems to me, actually, before we continue, for the, the podcast audience, what's the, what's the name of the game? The Anacrusis. The Anacrusis. Okay. And uh, naming sucks. Naming super hard. I hate naming anything. <laughs> I never want to name anything again in my life. Naming is hard. It's that talk about second guessing. That's like you know. we went through a million versions of light speed ahead, or yeah. like, but everything was either too dark, or it didn't speak co op, or it didn't. 
And then we're like, okay, what about just a sci-fi sounding words? Because it's kind of got like a 70s vibe to okay, it. Sure. Like 70s sci-fi, not cheesy, but yet, you know, I, like, I, I get it. Yeah. how do you embrace that? And so Dana Cruces is kind of this word. And mm -hmm. at first it sounds like, how, how do you spell that? Like exactly how it sounds. Right. A-N-A, you know, C-R-U-I-S. U-S-I-S. Uh, but like, eh, I can't even spell that, whatever. Uh, but like, it's just naming is so hard. Yeah. I hate naming. Um, I don't yeah. want to name anything again, but we went back and forth a lot on that. I still go back and forth if it's the right name or not, yeah. or if we should have taken some more. The problem with sci-fi names in particular is, man, once you start searching on them, uh, sure. the Pulp Fiction era of sci-fi has claimed almost every Pulp single names, name yeah. in the world. Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems like games recycle the same names over and over again, but like, um, yeah, well, name is hard. Sure. The fun thing is, so it is a word in the dictionary. It does okay. mean something. Oh, really? What does it mean? Um, it's the little bit of music before the main song starts. Oh, okay. Uh, and that's kind of what's happening here. Like, you're in the very beginning of the battles against the aliens that will rage for decades. But you're like the... I'm always interested in, like, you know, people dying in the Revolutionary War that you've never heard of. But sure. they actually had a really big part in it because it was those very early morning days that started that, like, they're just lost in this way of history. And that's like, we're with those people right now. Okay. Like, no one's going to remember these people, but they were at the start of this. Okay. And so that's kind of that name of it. And then there's a um, song by Shriekback, um, Faded Flowers, and he uses that term kind of in this way. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. So you talked a lot about sort of the dynamic difficulty of the game. And, like, it seems to me that dynamical, dynamic difficulty has two kind of, like, major problems it often runs into. Like, one is, I mean, there may be more, but one is that once you start adapting the difficulty you've sort of polluted your data set like at that point you can no longer it's harder to judge how good or bad a player actually is um like uh yep. I, I assume you know some very smart people can like figure your way through that but that seems like a challenge and then the the other one is that once players know that the game is at that and it depends on their intention as a player but you know like once they know that the game is adapting then they will play but to try to trigger certain types of adaption adaptations. Um, sure. I said the third is rubber banding, right. where it always just feels mushy. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, I think we kind of went in eyes wide open with map. I mean, the problem we're trying to solve is we want to have everybody, regardless of your skill set, have those moments where you're the last person standing, sure. helping everybody else back up, bringing people back to life, or, re or teleporting them back in so they don't die. Um, like in having all of these moments and how do you do that yep. in a way that just doesn't make it really hard for some people and too easy for others. Yeah, sure. And so, yeah, it's just playtesting, 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 playtesting. Um, you know, and that has been the way to do it. And it's been watching, not just gathering data after, but actually watching and seeing like, where are we falling down? And, you know, it's always if they have enough information. And the way we're deciding your skill becomes really hard to cheat, I think. I don't know, we probably won't talk about what that is exactly sure. because yeah. you know, that's what makes it secret and cooks. I mean, theoretically, if it's a co-op game, people shouldn't care about that too much compared to if it was a competitive game, but yeah. I guess you'll deal with that eventually. Well, but also, like, just that's one of the things, those things though, right? Of like, when you free yourself and say, we're just gonna make a co-op game, you can make a bunch of decisions. Yep. They're just so much easier and yep. better. Yep. Right? Like, so Riot's one of our investors, and we were talking to some people from Riot, um, Brendan from down there. 
and he was talking about Valorant and some of the choices they made and some of like how they think about meta and things. And he's like, oh, but you guys are co-op. Oh my God, you guys have it so much easier. <laughs> it's not fair. And it's uh, like, yes, yes, we are definitely free from things. And it's one of those, let's just run with that. And then when we come to wanting to put a versus mode in, we will, we will figure that out when it comes to it, but let's not, you know, uh, kneecap ourselves now. Sure, yeah. Um, when you uh, when you talk about playtesting, uh, I mean, is it, are you guys very much in the Valve model of like you you know you well, I don't know what it is pay people to come in and play or whatever? Or are you guys doing a beta test or early access or like what's your guys' plan? So what we've been doing for the past year and a half is just people play test. Well, it used to be come into the office. We don't do that anymore. Uh, they play remotely. We watch them play. We don't say anything. Um, who, who is who is they? Um, just different people. So it's been. So far, pretty easy to find either friends and family or other developers. Um, some people like will purposely try to seek out, like, hey, do you know anybody who, like, our, our baseline is you've played an FPS before. We're not going to teach you WASD. Yeah, sure. So do you know friends who are at that skill level? Right. Um, and how do you mesh in together? And in particular, we like mixed skill set where maybe somebody's really good and the rest aren't that good sure. or whatever. Yeah. Um, not to judge people. Um, but like the, just bringing those different groups in. And now we've opened it up into our Discord. Uh, Discord.gg slash Bombay. Come by if you want to play test. Um, and start bringing some of those people into play test. And we'll start doing that a little bit more publicly and keep growing that way. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's just watching. And they, we're in a good spot now where I think we have enough data that um, Amy, who's taken over that part of it, has a good sense of too easy, too hard and kind of just while you're playing and still making it challenging and making it intense. I think we have a difficulty group that's been around like since the beginning we started on this game. Mm -hmm. And the difficulty group would should be renamed, we've decided. It's probably not difficulty, but intensity. Okay, interesting. Because you kind of really want to have the intensity be the same whether you're good or bad. Yeah, sure. Um, and it's just how you navigate through that. Yeah. Right, and in fact, maybe there is a social version of the game. Instead of having it be like, easy, medium, and hard, it's intense and chill. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Might be the way to approach it because the intense version would be both regular and hard rolled in together. Right, yeah. Okay, cool. Again, right. again, naming though. So we'll have to name those. Those things. <laughs> I don't want to name them. <laughs> cool. Um, all right, so the game is almost done, at least almost ready for to come out? Yeah, so it's one of those things of, um, I wish we could just release one episode, uh -huh. start getting feedback, and build from there. But I think that's probably too little for the community to latch on to, and we need to release more than that. So we're trying to decide what is the um, least amount of content we can deliver, not because we're trying to be cheap, but what, like sure, before we make that big investment, we want to make sure we're getting the feedback yeah. from the big group. That's why I, I and love growing. working on early access titles, but yeah, right, go ahead. Yeah, and so it's like, but equally, like a lot of times in early access, you won't have really your gameplay down. You'll be just still finding the fun and right. it's just be messy. Where we're like, no, this is, we think how this works. We want to give you a thing to try. Mm -hmm. And so then it becomes a joke of like, what do you call the first episode of an HBO series? You don't call it early access, you call it the first episode, right. right? And so we want to do some stuff with story that's different as well. So I want you to care about the episodes and there'll be cliffhangers and things that are happening. So 
do we still just do that and it's some version of early access or right. is it just a release game and hey we just have a little bit of content we're gonna keep releasing content right okay so you're gonna be releasing a certain number of static levels that people play through yeah and um is it if it's not if you're trying to do it in a small scale is this like a free game then that's how you're gonna go through it or like because that's always kind of a big challenge if you're trying to do something small. yeah no so I think there's a there's a dollar amount attached to the game. I don't know what that dollar amount is yet. Right. Um, and we look at it that way. Okay. Um, so we're coming out on a lot of different platforms. We have cross-platform play, so we can be on Game Pass where it is essentially free. Right. Or you can get on Steam or EGS or maybe some other stores um, we're talking with. Um, but it's just like, just get it and play it because we want to be able to play with your friends, right? That's one of the really big things. And I think that's what a lot of games, modern games fall down on right now is there's like this a lot of cruft about them or yeah. you scale up your character and all of a sudden like, I'm level 50, come play with me. Sure. Oh wait, you go play the first 20 levels and then we can play together. We can't really play together until then sure. or whatever. Yeah, and it so seems we, like that's been a huge blind spot for a lot of games. Yeah, and so we make sure that it's you're not leveling up in a way that doesn't include other players. And actually, if you play with someone who's more skilled, it just means you have access to more things because they've earned them over time. and. Like those kind of things, and what feels good, and what feels like we're punishing you, and like some of that meta, we'll figure out. Okay. Are you trying? Have you thought about doing something like what It Takes Two did, where like only one person needs to own the game? So originally, when we were doing Left 4 Dead One, one of the engineers came up to me before release. He's like, "We got to give four packs. No one's going to play this game. Sure. This game is going to be an absolute failure unless we give you three copies to play with your friends." Right. I think it did okay without that. Sure. Does it need it now? I don't know. <laughs> Right? I mean, that's always the question because partially, like, I wish we could just give the game away for free for everybody. And I wish there was, like, universal basic income and servers yeah, were free. Sure. Yeah, sure. And I, agree. I would be totally <laughs> happy with that. Yeah. At the end of the day, I just want people to play the game. Right? Yeah, yeah. But that's not the way it is. Yeah. So we have server costs. We have other things we have to um, recoup. So how do we do this in a way that makes sense for everybody? And we'll figure that out. I mean, you know, to that end, the other thing is like this morning I had a meeting with um, modders because um, we yeah. want to make sure there's mod support out of the gate and we actually want to launch with mods yeah, already sure. there so players can understand that that's going to be a part of yeah. what our world is and what we think is or important. And, you know, I don't know, like we'll see what the modders decide to do. Like today was interesting of what they were asking for. And, you know, I think when it's a small group, we can just cheat and say, here's the depot. Yeah, sure. We can't do that publicly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, what do, we, what do we hone it down to that we can give people so that they can make some meaningful kind of change and impact? Because yeah. I love seeing that. I love the crazy stuff that people come up with. Um, and, you know, it's just giving them that vehicle to do crazy stuff. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, good luck. I mean, that sounds cool. I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad there's, uh, I, you know, I... Played, I played a decent amount of Deep Rock Galactic, um, and yeah. like, you know it's really it's always great to see more games come out that are like in this vein, right? Where, yeah, we, we so uh, our, in our Discord before we announced we had this problem of like how do we start talking to the community before we say the game? So we're like, well, why don't we just play the games we like with them? Yep. So we've been playing co-op games and mods. Yep. And so Deep Rock Galactic is one we played a yep. ton of. That's fun. Actually, going back and playing a bunch of Killing Floor. Mm -hmm. Uh, Killing Floor 2 is a really fun and satisfying game. Um, Risk of Rain 2 is another good sure. one. Like, there's a bunch. There are, like, Payday 2. No, Payday is great, yeah. Um, Ulf and the team over at 10 Chambers made uh, GTFO. Mm -hmm. And it's like, 
one of the things that someone had asked me the other day, they're doing an article about all the games coming out that are like all these four-player co-op games acting like they were all the same game. And I'm like, they're not. They're so radically different. Like yeah. GTFO is insanely different than Killing Floor 2. Right, but it's like playing that with the community, seeing how they play it, what they're caring about, what they care about, finding out how hard it is to match make, yep. especially cross-platform across those games. Like Sea of Thieves is super hard. Like how yep. do you do this? So like it's super easy in our game. There's a code, everyone can do it across any platform and just match it. Yeah. Like um, so that's been fun to do, and the mods are fun. Um, there's a lot of man, man. There's a lot of crazy uh, Half-Life or Source mods out there. Yeah, um, sure. We've been playing uh, Double Action Boogaloo a ton, which is just like a hilariously great game. Yep. So that's been fun. Cool. All right, well, good luck. So, well, thank you. Thank you for coming out to Seattle. I know it's to see yep. you know, folks out here, but uh, yes. yeah, thanks for coming by the office. Yeah, well, I, I do like to ask when I get to the end, of like, you know, as you kind of go over your career, like, why is it do you think you've chosen to, to make games? Um... Well, I know I want to make this game. Okay. And that's, like I said, I, I, I wanted to be a writer. Right. I am a writer, I think. I think I'm allowed to say that. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way. But maybe. Um, it still feels weird for my family. Uh, but uh, I don't think, I think too much of games are still being written as if they're movies versus games. And I want to tell a story in a very game way. It's very different, you know. Um, I think Hades starts heading towards the way that I've been thinking about this and wanting to do it. And, you know, those guys are super smart. Um, and I think they did a really great job with that, of, like, understanding, hey, if our game comes in this format, we can't just tell the story in the normal way. How do we tell it? Yeah. And what do we do? And sure. since we know this game's replayable and people are going to come back to it, how do we tell that story? How do we mix it up where it feels fresh still? How do they are not hearing the same thing all the time? And some of that's just writing more, right? You just write sure. a lot of stuff. But some of it's also just how you tell the story and what you're doing there. And yeah, so, I love that that game is like aware of the context in which it's played, right? They're not hiding from that. That's yeah. like, yeah, like basically what you're saying. So anyway, go ahead. Yeah. And so wanting to do that, and that's why I kind of want to do this game, is I want to be able to have that experience where um, I feel like the game was written as a game in a game sense. And then the other thing is just, um, you know, I'm friends with a lot of um, people who've made games for a while, who've been very successful, who can kind of look differently at the world. Like, so I'm um, John Vichy, one of the um, mm -hmm. PopCap founders, and I, him and I talked a lot about like company formation and what that looks like. And it's like, can't save the world. I don't know how to stop homelessness, but I think I have a good idea how to make a non-toxic, decent place for people to work and make games. And I like games and I still play games myself all the time. So where can I do that where, you know, like, like I was talking about the bonus structure and like how you make that. Well, you know, I signed the same paper they did. I'm making the same money the same way they did, mm -hmm. that they will. Um, and that's important of like saying like, let's, let's be equitable across the company so that everybody Everybody's hours are equally thought of and, and, and rewarded. And so if I can do something there and make a company that has that structure where people do feel good about working there, do feel like they were rewarded and compensated for their work, and are making things that are social and bringing people together and having fun, then yeah, that's a good, that's a good shot. So this'll be it. Right. After this, 
I don't know. We'll see. I forget how hard games are to make and how little they want to be made. Yeah. They fight you tooth and nail it's, at every it's, step. It's important to forget each time, I think, before you start again. <laughs> but but then you have, like, so last Friday, I was just, like, telling the whole team, like, like my God, our velocity in this last month has gone through the roof. Sure, and all yeah. the stuff that's coming in, and it's so much fun. And, like, what game do we want to play today? Let's go play our game. Yeah. Like, because it's just fun. That's right. Great. And it's just, like, having those moments are great again. I'm like, okay, yeah, this is this is working. So. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thank you. Thank well, thank you, sir. Man, I babbled for a long time. <laughs> it's right. it super. Man, if you made it this long, you must have fallen asleep. Wake no, up. No, Hopefully you're good. not driving. <laughs>